this is a manufactured crisis. Are numbers increasing because we have more asylum seekers? Yes. They are holding them in Border Patrol stations and treating them awful so that when they're calling back to whatever country they're from and saying, don't come here, you can't deter people who are claiming asylum. If somebody's claiming asylum and they have to leave their homeland, it's because they really are in dire straits. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 65, The Honor First, a Beacon Series conversation featuring former senior Border Patrol agent and immigrant rights activist, Jen Budd. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Thank you for tuning your dial to this special Beacon Series episode of Find the Good News. With our Beacon Series, I'm attempting to bring you voices far from the region that I would traditionally call home, drawing in ideas and perspectives that we may not be used to discussing. In this Beacon Series episode, I'm joined by Good Newsy Laura Grantham Broussard in a conversation with former Senior Border Patrol agent Jen Budd. Jen shares some very stark realities about her time in the Border Patrol. She tells the truth, and like most truth, it is sometimes hard to hear. I encourage you to listen to our entire conversation, no matter how you feel about the issues surrounding the United States-Mexico border. Next week, I share my conversation with local chef, owner of Luna, and founder of ChuckFest, Dave Evans. Dave had a great energy, and I felt really blessed to have him share his story at the right round table. You should really enjoy our visit. This is a great episode, so I'm not going to hold you up. So boost the power, adjust the gain, raise the antenna a bit higher than normal, point it towards the truth, and when the signal gets clear, press play on a little good news. I often say that we have to walk into the darkened recesses of the cave to find the truth. It's important to learn what is needed, then light lanterns on our way out, illuminating the way so the next travelers can get to that truth safer and with less suffering. I was reminded of this metaphor again when I recently spoke with former Senior Border Patrol agent Jen Budd as a part of the Beacon series on Find the Good News. Instead of going into the dark cave, we traveled along Jen's road to the United States-Mexico border and her eventual exodus from the organization tasked with patrolling this contentious space between our two countries. I first heard Jen Budd's voice through the content stream of Laura Grantham Broussard, who joined me in this important conversation with Jen. And with each of her interviews, I could tell that she had a zeal for shining light on the toxic culture and corruption that has stained the U.S. Border Patrol long before the fervor of politically charged media interest in recent years. In our visit with Jen, we learned that her dissolution with the U.S. Border Patrol and her subsequent willingness to step into the breach as an immigration rights activist did not come without deeply personal pain and suffering. Jen survived her deeply traumatic ordeal in the U.S. Border Patrol, eventually surviving herself then transmuting all of that scar tissue into a heart that burns with a passion to help others. Rhetoric regarding immigration, asylum, and the United States-Mexico border has been wielded by powerful voices as political weapons, 
and the image of a tumultuous border has been manipulated to turn a true humanitarian crisis into a profit source for many struggling communities and greed-driven companies. For many of us, these conversations about the border are based on speculation only, and the voices we are listening to often have little to no actual experience with on-the-ground border realities. This is not the case with Jen Budd. Almost two decades ago, the current of life carried Jen to the border to protect and patrol, but there was no one there to safeguard her from the very organization she had joined. Now, the tide of time has carried Jen back to this line between our two countries, this area that changed her life, a bitter line that is being used to disrupt the quality of life on both its sides with cruel decisions that will affect families for many generations to come. She and others like her believe in a safe and healthy border that is protected by communities working together with open hands instead of closed fists, with compassion instead of cruelty, celebrating shared cultures and working to promote a better border vision for all of us. This is our conversation with Jen Budd. It's morning, dreaming up the story I can hear The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance in a holy wall of light Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. Well, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate that. This oh, is thanks for inviting me. Now, this is great. I uh, this is a new series we're actually doing. We're calling it "Find the Good News Beacon." Most of our original intent with this show was to basically create a positive information stream, but not a false positive in- information stream. You know, like a, I guess what I mean by false positivity is that sort of turning a blind eye to the troubles in the world and pretending like everything is sunshine and rainbows, you know, my, uh, (laughs) my perspective is that we have to walk into those dark places, but we don't have to stay there. We have to kind of find a way out. And so Mm. when I reached out to you, I was really excited to see this plan, which I read and I've really enjoyed reading a new border vision. That was Mm -hmm. really exciting because that's kind of thing that I, I feel deeply, but don't really have a framework to talk about with folks because I'm kind of a feeler, I guess. Uh, I base a lot of things on what my heart tells me. And sometimes uh, heart work doesn't always line up with um, 
the realities of the work that needs to be done. But this plan was really, really in that kind of category, I felt like. But for the folks that are listening that really don't know who I'm talking to, if you don't mind, could you tell us who you are and and kind of frame yourself the way you would like to be presented and let them know who I'm talking to? So my name is Jen Bud, kind of like the beer, um, but with two Ds. And I uh, was a former senior Border Patrol agent in Campo, California, which is the mountains east of San Diego. And then I was also an intelligence agent at uh, San Diego Sector for about six years in 95 to 2001. And um, I resigned out of disgust for the corruption and stuff of the agency and, and felt it didn't jive with my core values and my morals. and. It took me quite a long time to think about things and see things, but basically I've kind of turned into this, like, immigration rights activist. Yeah. So how does that happen? I mean, that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask. One of the things I've asked almost everybody that's been on this show is why do something instead of nothing? I mean, you could have very easily had those feelings and those thoughts and felt like that the agency didn't align with who you are, but then you could have just walked away, but you chose to become a voice, right? Yeah. And I did walk away for, you know, quite a few years and, um, uh, and I realized that I, in 2015, I had discovered that I was suffering from PTSD from a, a lot of the things I went through in the patrol. Really? And yeah, and in my life, and and had been trying to seek help, but they were giving me some medications that didn't really work, and um, weren't addressing the issues. I don't. I'm not saying it's their fault. I think a lot of it was that I didn't recognize. Um, the trauma that I had endured so I didn't think it was important and I didn't like talking about my time in the border patrol and so I just tried not to bring it up and then I had a major suicide attempt in February of 2015 and should have died but did not and I just started realizing I needed to really stop hiding things and talking about it and so I started talking about it and then I started writing about it wow okay and yeah and and then the administration started separating children and that was just as a as a kind of student of authoritarian regimes and 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 corrupt governments I was like wait a minute wait a minute (laughs) this this can't go on and I have to say something and I didn't know if anybody would have wanted to listen to me um but apparently it struck a chord and then I started getting more involved and thinking I need to I need to do what I haven't done in the past which was listen to migrants and their stories and listen to their perspective and how the enforcement policies uh, the enforcing I was doing with the policies how it affects them and that was um, it was quite painful really to, to listen to that and um but i think it's important to step into that pain and and really experience because i think it's when we step back into maybe the the wrongs that we've done or or trauma that we've had that that's the really the only way that you can heal and so you know i i think that that's kind of what's led me on this cause and, and 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 keeps me going really honestly yeah, that's actually all very powerful stuff, Jen. I didn't know any of that. I mean, I have no way to know, but but hearing what you just said, I mean, 
to to know that you experienced something that really drove you to that point i mean i would say probably despair right was it a feeling of just like okay i enough is enough i mean we we have had that in our family too a a suicide attempt that was survived and Mm -hmm. it is an opportunity to change and to open your heart up in a whole new way and and ignoring that pain like you described i mean gosh i can relate to that so much of you you've got a pain or you've done something or you've been involved with something or or just something's going on in your life that's just affecting you negatively and you don't talk about it it doesn't go away necessarily it just sort of grows around and infects everything and before you know it it, it's filling up all those little crevasses inside and painting everything yeah i mean and i'm a i'm a southern girl from alabama and i grew up you know in the 70s and 80s there in huntsville and you know i mean to go into a psychiatrist was something that us crazy Californians <laughs> that that wasn't necessarily anything that was on my mind and you know yeah. so um, certainly didn't think that it would work or help or anything but I do feel really that you know part of the reasons why I joined the Border Patrol of wanting to serve the country and wanting to help citizens and, and help anybody really not even citizens but be of service to my community is the same thing that still stays with me. I just chose the wrong organization. Mm. And, and and I say the wrong organization because it's it's being used by politicians and was starting to be used by politicians like Clinton back in the day when I was an agent and that's when all this kind of started. I don't agree with open borders and I do feel that we need a border patrol, but I'm more saddened. I don't hate them. I'm more saddened by what I know they should be doing and what they could be doing. Yeah. Um, That's that's, actually, that's something that I scratch my head about because for, for us, and I I talk to my son about this a lot. We have, uh, this is a topic that comes up in our conversations quite a bit. And sometimes I find myself having a, uh, a difficult time answering some of his questions because when we talk about the border, you know, he, he's on, I guess a side where he's like, you know, well, should we have open borders? And I said, you know, that's that's not going to work but i also don't believe we have to maybe secure the border with a fist and i wonder what you think about that because he and i talk about this a lot and i go you know i don't know what the answer is i mean i'm just a lay person i don't live on the border but it's an issue that comes up so often and it obviously affects a lot of people on both sides of the border and compassion is something that i lean towards first i would always say I would rather try that before I try anything else. I think having to resort to force or anything that's mandatory should always be second. I think we should always try to to do something more that has a more a, a more peaceful tone to it or that considers a bulk of people more and what's best for everybody, not just one individual. But I say all that to mean basically I just wonder in your experience, I mean, is that even a possibility? Do you really believe that you can have a secure and safe border that is managed with compassion? Absolutely. A hundred percent I believe in that. And you know, I think that those who are inclined to separate people and divide us are the ones that say we either have to have an iron fist with the border 
or you're either for open borders. And that's just not the case. And, yeah. and when you talk to people, and I talk to plenty of people who are Trump supporters and, and stuff, and when they start talking to me, you know, at first they're really confrontational and they're like, oh, you're just for open borders. And then it comes down to the fact that I'm not for open borders and they realize, oh wait, maybe we can agree on something. And um, so part of the problem is nobody ever asks the citizens who live down here, you know, what do you think would work? What do right. we need to do so that you can, and that, and that's what that, that piece from the Southern Borders uh, Community Coalition that I gave you, yes. that's what they're trying to give to people instead of, because a lot of times like the de- Democrats are kind of just Republican light or have been Republican light on immigration and border issues. But we can have, and we do need a border patrol that is out here for, for um, because there are bad people just like there are in any community. And so we, we need that law enforcement for uh, narcotics mm-hmm. and we need that enforcement for people who do cross and, and get in danger. We need that enforcement in case there are, you know, on the off chance, somebody really bad, a terrorist, a rapist, whoever. Right. But that's less than 1% of the people who are coming to our southern border. And so I think what I always tell people is that we are, and we have, it's not just a Trump issue. We've been doing this for forever. We are using a law enforcement tool to deal with what is predominantly a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. And so you're not going to get anywhere. And and so what I envision, and I think what southernborders.org envisions, is that we we ask the local community, as well as law enforcement, as well as people from national security, and we come together and say this is this is what we need. And we start realizing that the future of migration is climate change, refugee, asylum-seeking people. Mm-hmm. And to bury your head in the sand is just going to make the problems worse instead of welcoming and helping people who can become productive uh, parts of our society and make this country greater. And, and instead, you know, because when you separate families and you divide families you are in the future just going to create more problems. Yeah. You know, you're in the future are denying people the opportunity, which then turns people to forces people into crime. So you're just going to create more problems for yourself. Future. Yeah, well, you, you know, that's one. You're right. I mean, I, these these children and these parents, I, I try to imagine every time I see this happening, I immediately put myself into into the situation because i mean look i have young children and Mm -hmm. my youngest is eight years old and he and i have a very close loving bond and i sleep with him every night and every night when i lay in a warm bed with him and he falls asleep i think about what would i feel like i mean just as a human man Mm-hmm. If my child, if this boy that I love at this age was taken from me, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, what would I do to give him safety, to get mm-hmm. so that he doesn't have to live in fear? What would I be willing to do? And so I put myself in those shoes and I go, well, really anything. And then on top of that, when I imagine trying to being separated from him, the emotional trauma that that's going to cause me and him, it, it's going to build a type of resentment 
towards the entity mm-hmm. that has done this to me. And this is where I've always said this. This is where terrorism is born. This is where extremism is born. This is where hate is born. Yeah. It doesn't just come. Well, now, granted, there are people who are taught to hate, yes. but but you can become hateful in a vengeful way if something cruel is done to you. And mm-hmm. I, I think about that when I see these stories and I look at these these um, detention centers and I, you know, the news just constantly feeding this stuff out. And I go, how many people are, are is hate being born in their hearts towards just America in general? And I hate to see that because I always when I was younger, I wanted to believe we were the good guys. Right. You know, right. I mean, I really did. And I've, I've as the years are going by and especially in the last several, I've just went, are we? anymore yeah maybe collectively still we have this opportunity that maybe some people don't but the authorities just don't seem like the good guys anymore it just seems like it's gotten cruel if if that's the word i would have to use again did you sense that i mean when you're in your time in the border patrol like a a level of uh vindictiveness or maybe even cruelty or uh, a power it was starting to get that way i know that um I know that the buzz talk, you know, and what people read in, in uh, the newspapers and online articles is, is that a lot of the problems with the Border Patrol had started after 9-11. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is true to a certain extent, but it also was going on, I want to say around like uh, 98, 99, when Clinton started to push even more so than he had then in 95 when I got in. And... and we saw a lot of uh, trainees that hadn't even, they've gotten through the academy, but they haven't even had their full background checks and stuff. So, mm. And then just yesterday, I found out that a lot of the agents that were hired under Bush after 9-11 and the push, they only had like 52 days of training, which is just absurd. And then on top of it, they didn't even do the background checks on a lot of these guys. So why is that? Do you think is it just a a mad dash to fill the ranks or what? Yeah, yeah, it's just a mad dash to fill the ranks, and nobody stood up and said this is. I mean, nobody's willing to stand up and say this isn't appropriate and this is what's happening. And and another part of it, frankly, is 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 if Border Patrol was policing Louisiana or California or something, somebody who had a representative, this would have stopped much sooner. But the fact is, is nobody represents immigrants. They don't have a voice. And so it's very, you know, even our our very liberal Dianne Feinstein, our senator out here, was uh, quite anti-immigrant on a lot of votes. And so it's not necessarily anything that politicians have had to pay any price for with republicans they get more votes if they're really hard on immigrants and with democrats i think that they're afraid to be too light on immigrants Mm. so it's it you know i just wish people could listen to all sides and and do what they feel is is right instead of always trying to put it through the how many votes am i going to get 
You know what I mean? No, I do. It's one of the things <laughs> I wrote down when I was kind of meditating on what we would talk about. And I had to search my own heart, you know, because, again, I I have conversations with people I love and people I care about. But this always comes up as sort of the source of contention because I find that we end up not seeing eye to eye. And one of the things that always comes back to me is that the politici- the politicizing of the issue, and it, it totally dehumanizes people. I mean, when mm-hmm. they get run through the engine of politics, it's like our humanity and dignity mm-hmm. just gets stripped away and we become an apparatus for votes. And even like you mentioned earlier, I don't know if we were recording yet, but we were talking about, you know, Louisiana's uh, this revival of all of these old prisons and buildings, you know, being used as detention centers now. I mean, when you do the research on that, yeah, I mean, look, Laura, by the way, Laura's here. Hi, Hi, Laura. Hi. I mean, Laura Laura works directly in this. I mean, so, yeah, look, we're how many are there in Louisiana? There are 11 now. 11 detention centers. When we last spoke, when I was a guest on the podcast, (laughs) there were two. Wow. Since the last time you were here. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a huge escalation. In less than a year, we went from two to 11. And so the goal is 15,000. Um, ICE prisoners in Louisiana by the end of the year. That's ICE's stated goal, which is about the number of beds that were cleared out um, when our governor and, you know, when that package of of, um, criminal justice reform bills passed. So So these are rural towns that relied on the jails for their local economies. So they were mm -hmm. quick to jump on those contracts with ICE. And Mm -hmm. that is why, like, when I last spoke to you, I was working directly in the community with with asylum seekers who had been paroled well nobody's getting paroled anymore right because the warrant because being filling a bed and filling a room you're you're creating an economy and a boost to the economy and there mm-hmm. again there's where we we're dehumanizing people and they just become dollar signs well and, that, and it's it's this industry of warehousing people in california now gavin newsom the governor has decided that there won't be any private detentions anymore uh for immigrants and so what GeoCore has done is now they're getting into building homeless housing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. and they're most likely going to use the police to round up the homeless people to fill the beds. So this concept of they they act like they're they act like they're a normal business like a hotel chain who says to be productive and to pay our employees and cover our costs, we need to have 60% you know, fill up rate of of a hundred percent of our hotels, kind of, and that's how they're looking at it. But we're talking about people's lives here. We're not right. talking about Thank filling you. hotel rooms. We're talking about taking people's freedoms away. And I think a lot of these uh, towns, like what you guys are talking about, that you're seeing in Louisiana. You know, frankly, I think the local officials, the sheriffs, and the, and the mayors and city council and stuff. I think they need to be. I think citizens need to address and say, you know, we're worth more than this. We've mm. voted you in to make sure that we are safe and to make sure that we have an economy and that we have jobs in our community. And just going out and building prisons left and right and making us watch people all day long, who, you know, and that puts you in a bad position as well. I mean, I think Louisianans have a right to ask for a little bit more out of their representatives than just 
laziness of saying, well, I'll just get my money from ICE kind of thing and make you work at a prison. So yeah. I think well, that, it's bad it sounds terrible sides. when you frame it that way. It's right. I mean, we don't talk mm-hmm. in that kind of language. It's all dressed up completely differently. But no, when you say it plainly like that. Out of detaining people. And, and I really think locally that's where it's at because people are always like, what can I do? What can I do? And it's like, don't look at the federal level. Look at the local level. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want your community and your mom and dad and then the sons and generations to be making their living off of detaining people who are coming here to try and save their children, then you have a right to say so. And if if your elected official is not willing to do that, then vote them out. We yeah, get something else. I have a question. If we can pause for a moment on that and just kind of go back in time a little bit, I, I am. I'd love to hear more about sort of your journey and what drew you to the Border Patrol, and then what mm-hmm. you kind of envisioned it was going to be like versus the reality of what it was like, and then how how much time did that take before I guess the honeymoon phase wore off with the Border Patrol? So I was mostly raised in Alabama and um, mostly in Huntsville, which is northern Alabama. And I went to Auburn University. And then after I graduated, I uh, I went back home and I was thinking about going to law school. But I had grown up in a very um, traumatic, I guess, kind of household. My mother is a severe alcoholic and my father dealt with it by always being away and mm. having affairs and stuff and never being around. And so kind of like when I got, when I was at Auburn, I realized, Hey, that's not normal. <laughs> you yeah, know? Right, and right. when I came back home, I'm like, I gotta get out of here. And somebody <laughs> said, the border patrol is hiring. And I went, but what? Yeah, Cause I had never heard of a border patrol, you know, I'm an Alabama girl, Mexican food or anything to me was like Taco Bell. That's all I knew. I took French in high school. I didn't take Spanish. Yeah, it wasn't like you had some deep passion for like heading to the border, right? You know, it was I, like, and I, you know, I'm a white girl. I don't have any, you know, it's like mostly French and Irish in me and German, but you know, so I, um, I was like, okay, it sounds like a federal agency. They offer me a, you know, like I figured it was like the FBI, but uniform and on hmm. the border and they offered me a job in San Diego and uh, I am a gay woman and I knew I was gay back then and so it was like well that sounds pretty good to me yeah <laughs> so so I joined and um, I learned I started getting an inkling that I had joined something that well let me back up and say that they they had told me that it was basically about drug smuggling and that kind of stuff right they didn't mention families or anything like that and so well, yeah, you're well, thinking, okay, I'm, these are the bad guys. Like, it's painted like there's a, a big foil, for sure. Okay. Yeah. And And when they said that there were people who crossed illegally, it was like, okay, well, that's illegal. You know, it didn't, it, it, certainly from, the kids say, they call it privilege, which I think is a good word for it. So from my, my privilege, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's the law, you know, without considering why they're crossing or mm. understanding either crossing and so um but at the academy i had learned pretty quickly that there was there was a difference between men and women in the academy Hmm. and the men got their they separated us the very first day and the the women got 
this talk that was supposed to be about our hair and how to wear our makeup and stuff in uniform. And we were all, there was only six of us. So there's like roughly 10% of us were women and starting in the class, but only two of us graduated. And then border patrol female numbers are way low. They're always at 5% and never higher. Uh, and they say it's because it's really rough, but that's not why. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Mm, okay. But, um, so we're all looking at each other like, what are they talking about? You know, it felt like fifth grade sex ed class or something. <laughs> yeah. Like that. And and but we had to sit in there and wait, and because the men were still talking, I'm like, what are they talking about in there? And um, they told us afterwards that the instructors who were all male, told them that women did not belong in the Border Patrol and that the only way, and that we couldn't physically do the obstacle courses and the runs and stuff like that. And the only way that we got through it was we would um, falsely accuse either our classmates or the instructors of sexual assault or outright rape, and then we would file equal employment opportunity claims, and so then they would just be forced to hire us to get rid of the lawsuit. Wow, so they're basically saying that you're just sort of like a token hire, basically, to appease. Uh Wow, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So that night, we didn't have any female agents that came to talk to us except about our hair. There go. <laughs> wow, that that blows my mind. Actually, I had no idea. Yeah, and then <laughs> what year night, was this, Jen? Uh, 1995, June of 1995. I actually entered on my birthday, so oh. yeah. Oh wow! But, so maybe the last week of June, early July, maybe. But so then, at the time, there were ten classes going through the academy. This was in Georgia, and um, they staggered them two weeks apart. So every two weeks, a new class would come in. And I was in the 288th. And so all the women that were still around from the other classes that were ahead of me, they come to your, at Glencoe in Georgia, we had, um, it's an old military base. So we, each townhome was divided amongst, you know, this townhome's a woman's townhome, this townhome's a man's, and they did it like that. And there were like four, three or four bedrooms in each townhome. And, um, but the the older the women in the classes ahead of us would come to our townhouse at night in the dark, you know, like at eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock at night when nobody's paying attention to tell us what was really going on and tell us what we need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. It's very negative. I don't, you know, I know we want to be positive on this show, but basically, well, no, the truth's better. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay, um, don't ever leave your drinks unattended because you will get. Roofied, you know, really? your drinks will get drugged, and um, don't ever go into their townhomes alone. Um, and if you do get drugged, you'll find yourself in their townhomes. And they play this game that they play at all the academies called the game of smiles, where they drug a woman and force her to provide oral stimulation to one of the men, and the first one who oh smiles gosh. has to drink. It's like the worst kind of frat house you can imagine. And then with the instructors, if the instructors like you and choose you, you had better do whatever they want or they will fail you on your Spanish boards, which are verbal. So they're subjective. And I saw this happen to plenty of women. And um, and that's just, you know, that's just how it was. For me personally, I didn't have any instructors that 
wanted to date me, so that was good. But I did go home from uh, the bar one night. I think I had had a beer, maybe two beers, but I wasn't drunk. And I was walking across campus, and then one of my classmates came up to me and said, hey, let me walk with you so you know you can be safe. And I'm like, I'm naive. I'm 24, but I'm still relatively naive, I guess. And I thought, you know, um, we're on a campus full of soon to be federal agents mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I mean how much how much danger can I be in he right. goes well you never know now as an adult woman I would be like Doing, you know uh-huh. I'd be like uh oh watch out for this person but I didn't back then and and he ended up sexually assaulting me outside of my town home and, and beat me up and everybody knew it because I had the visual mm. scars on my face <sighs> and then they made me fight him the next day in physical training and they laughed about it and thought it was funny. So everybody knew about they it. They knew what happened. They knew what happened. And then, and I, I didn't want to file this complaint. I mean, that's like right at the beginning of, you haven't, you're not even an agent yet at this point, right? No, no. I was three months in. I still had another month to go. And, and I, you know, he was like six foot five. I'm six foot four, six foot five. I'm five foot five. And back then I was in really good shape. I don't know. I was, he probably had a hundred pounds on me easily. But, um, I didn't want to file a complaint because I knew that they would stop my training if they did to investigate it. And besides, he's not my supervisor, so EEO doesn't qualify for that. Mm. But mm. I, they wouldn't allow me to call the police because they said it was a federal academy and they wanted to settle it themselves. And wow! so I just said, I, you know, I just don't want you to, I'll fight any guy. I understand that, you know, I can't pick and choose the size of my attacker. I get that. That's fine. But I'm not going to fight this guy anymore. And if you make me fight him, then, then we will be looking at legal action. And so they tried to fail me on my final PT run by less than one second. And so when you fail your P, your PT, your final physical training bill, um, everybody gets one retake. And, and I just made sure I smoked it. Mm. And um, and then they couldn't do anything about it. And I think they sent me out to Campo because they thought I wouldn't make it. I was the only woman out there for quite some time. And they didn't give me a bulletproof vest for at least a year because they said they didn't have any for women, which is ridiculous. That is so strange. Gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, so it was, it was pretty right at the beginning. But I will say that I didn't understand that it was systemic i didn't right. understand i mean i the women told us this stuff but in all honesty it was like oh come on you know right. and i really thought that i had some sort of control over how i was perceived or you know if i just worked really hard and did a good job then i would be accepted and i just did not get through my head for for at least a couple of years that I would never be accepted and that really no woman really is in the border patrol. So interesting that that's, I'm so, first of all, I got to say, I'm sorry that that happened to you because it shouldn't happen to anybody. And, uh, I can see now why, I mean, just hearing what you said about, you know, your mother and then your father being absent. And then you go into this organization and you're going, Hey, I'm going to do this. And then what happens in there? You know, you were talking about suffering and trauma and pain and how we have to enter that sometimes to, to see mm. what has happened to other people. You've had your fair share and you have entered into it. I mean, 
I guess the the silver lining, if there can, if you can even call it that, or the ray of hope, is that you're using that pain to and that trauma to do good. I mean, yeah, really, I think I think so. It's you know, I often say that I was not uh, appreciated and wanted in my family, and so I can definitely say that I had this need to belong, mm-hmm. and and I think that's what led me to the border patrol, and it felt like. Because my grandfather was in the army, he was a colonel in the army, so I knew that kind of system and the border patrols a little like that. Right. And I felt like, you know, if I, I if I did the work because I have the badge and and I wear the same colors, then we're all a team, right? Right. And so, but you know, and it's still to this day when I talk to agents and they're in that uniform, it's very strange to me because. I have this, um, not anger towards them, but I have this PTSD kind of reaction when mm. I'm around them. And at the same time, I care for them yeah, because yeah. they're my family. Uh, and, and so wow. it's, it's very difficult. Um, but I do think one of my friends who's, um, a very big evangelical Christian said that, there's a reason that God put me in that green uniform. So there you go. Transformation. God, we talk about that a lot on this show and I, I sometimes never know what we're going to talk about on this show. And I honestly (laughs) didn't expect to hear about 80% of what you've said so far. And that's really what I'm hearing is transformation. I mean, you're in a particular position with a particular history with particular pains that you are utilizing to transform yourself and then you and to hopefully transform i mean the border honestly the way mm-hmm. we treat the the people coming across the border the way the border is managed it's an interesting place to find yourself it's probably nowhere near where you imagined yourself to to be when you were 20 years, 20 years old. <laughs> no and, and not even you know like in 2015 when my suicide attempt i'm like you know I, i'm like yeah. done and now i now look at me you know and it's right. and and the thing about it is that's interesting to me too is that i i i get so many criticisms and people are like well the border patrol can do no good in your eyes and i'm like that's not true yeah they do a lot of good but they're also doing a lot of bad and yeah. i want to see them be good i want to see them reach their potential and i don't know if the agency can go on with as much as has happened or if it needs to be another new agency i'm not sure but i mean we definitely have to deal with the corruption we have to deal with the problems i read somewhere and i wonder what you think about this i don't remember the article or the date but it was something i read and it was pretty interesting and it was interviews with some folks that are currently working in the border patrol and they said that for years nobody cared about them or knew who they were and nobody was talking about them and now Mm -hmm. they're miserable because they feel like they've been demonized (laughs) yeah we were under the cover of dark for so long (laughs) um i think it's interesting um people ask me you know what's what's the one phrase i would give to describe the border patrol zeitgeist i guess of the agents and how they feel their overall you know how would i sum it up and i would say low self-esteem Hmm. Um, because for the longest time, like when I first got in, we didn't even have enough gas sometimes to take our vehicles out. We'd have to go walk out, you know, on foot. 
and we just had no money. We lived up there in Campo in trailers and stuff, and 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 nobody put any money into border patrol or immigration agencies and stuff, and nobody cared. And we're not seen as typical law enforcement, and that kills border patrol agents, especially after 9-11, because they desperately want to be seen as the heroes. They desperately, because these are a lot of these people, a lot of these guys that go into the border patrol a lot of times have tried to get into other agencies, not all of them, obviously, not, I wasn't, but a lot of them have, and they've been they've not been allowed to because maybe they can't pass the psyche eval. There's no psyche eval for border patrol. Oh really? So this, yeah, Hmm. the standards are much lower for getting into the border patrol. They're even lower than when I was an agent, but, but they, you know, they, they're getting into that. You know, they want to help people. They want to protect the country. And, so then they want more attention and now that they have more attention and people see what they're actually doing to them because they've been raised in this institution that gives them all this propaganda from anti-immigrant hate groups and feeds it to them they really feel and this is the way they speak now which is different than how we were trained back in the day they really feel that we're being invaded yeah. They really, yeah, and they say that, and they call asylum seekers prisoners. So the mentality that they have, and because they're so insulated in this Border Patrol family, mm-hmm. so now they're getting all they want. Now Donald Trump's like, yeah, I love you guys, you're great. They're getting to be next to him, standing up at the podium, and they're loving it. And it's killing them that people think that they're not heroes, and mm. that they're racist, and that they're bullies. And it's like... But you guys are, you know, right. and as an agency, you are, you may not feel like you are because you have been raised and, and, and fed this information for decades, but you are, yeah. you know, yeah. and I don't think, you know, like I said, it took me many years after I got out of the patrol to look back on it and say, to see the the institutionalized racism and propaganda and how it's being used by politicians on both sides and it's not benefiting the agents it puts the agents in more danger and it's not benefiting the american citizens and it's not benefiting the immigrants it's benefiting the politicians you said a word i would like as one of the things i'd wanted to talk about was that word invasion you know for that's a word that gets thrown around so much and if you don't we don't live on the border okay i mean the border is an idea and a concept and yeah i've driven down to the border like in brownsville but it was pretty tame it would look like any other metropolitan kind of city and then there's a border wall and entry points and i remember a friend of mine and I, we had to go some video work down there, actually. It was a, a video about the drug pipeline from Brownsville to Lake Charles. Mm-hmm. And so we were tasked to drive down to the border and then film all these different spots on the way back. When we Before we went with our client, our client kind of told us, now, look, be careful when you get down there. And they gave us all this... Like, not, I don't want to say hype talk, but we really, in our mind's eye, this is, again, this is four or five years ago, so this is pre-Donald Trump. In our mind's eye, we both literally kissed our wives goodbye and thought, we're some, you know, combat photographers heading down to the border. I mean, I'm not right. even joking. That was literally what in our, and we're adults. Right. I mean, adults, I you know, so we're going, okay. We head down to the border, and when we get there, we're like, uh, 
Where's all the <laughs> the smoking pretty, ruins and the it's drugs and down there, it was it? pretty tame. And so we we had breakfast and we went to bed and we got up and we really literally drove around Brownsville trying to find something insidious looking to film. <laughs> to film, right. you know, I mean, it's the yeah. truth. We did, and so we we ultimately ended up not finding what we were looking for. It all just looked like a bunch of people walking around, pretty pretty normal and so we ended up just filming at one of these checkpoints that you go drive through you know we just did a little drive through to show them sniffing under the car and all that but on our way back we come back and look at that footage and we were like that was the biggest psych up that I think I'd ever been in because it just was not and I granted that may be one location but I guess for me all these years later, you know, fast forward four or five years later, I start hearing words like invasion, mm-hmm. you know, the, a horde of people and some of the other words that are being thrown about. And I was like, I wasn't so quick to jump on it. I wasn't co- so quick to bite because mm-hmm. I was like, I've been sold this before mm-hmm. and I and it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that are being sold that and because they don't have eyes on it. They don't realize right. that it's not real. It's sort of like a movie gets played in your mind. And so I wonder if you could just share, like, what is the reality like working on the border? I mean, in juxtaposition to the word invasion. Well, okay, so I think we had talked about this before we started recording. But, like, when I – in 1995, the total number of agents on the southern border was less than 5,000. And and in '96 as well. So in 1995, we had one point, I want to say 1.2 million apprehensions, and in '96, I believe it was 1.5 million apprehensions with less than 5,000 agents. They have 20,000 agents now, so that's four times as, as many. And the average that they've been getting for the last five years, five to 10 years has been about 300, 400,000 a year. So that's quite a significant drop. Now, I know last year, fiscal year 2019, because the federal fiscal year ends in October, so it just ended. They had a little over 800,000. I think it's like 811,000. And then, a, you know, Maso Menos a few. Um, and so it has increased, but still, if you, you know, just calculate the numbers with a force that's increased four times as much and they have helicopters and black hawk helicopters and cameras and all the stuff that we didn't have anything like that we track their footprints that's how we, mm-hmm. we did it mm. um and um and then the people will say well back then you didn't have as many asylum seekers it was mostly single mexican males and statistically that's true but out in campo i arrested plenty of families the very first first group i ever arrested was a family and i was so confused because i was like okay where are the drugs where are the weapons Mm. and then there was nothing and um so this is a manufactured crisis and now is it is it our numbers Increasing because we have more asylum seekers. Yes, yeah, that is increasing, and it does take more time to process asylum seekers, but it doesn't take as long as is what they're doing and how they're holding them in detention uh, for a long time. Um, they're purposely holding them in detention so that when they either before MPP when they were paroled into the United States. Mm-hmm to be with family, and then also after MPP, where they're being sent back to Mexico to wait for their hearings, 
um, they are they're, they are holding them in border patrol stations like that and getting them sick and treating them awful so that when they're waiting for their hearings they're calling back to whatever country they're from and saying don't come here it's mm. awful this is what and so that's ah. what they mean by deterrence mm-hmm. they say oh we need to deter people by putting them in jail and it's like you can't deter people who are claiming asylum I mean that if somebody's claiming asylum and they want and they have to leave their homeland it's because they really are in dire straits nobody just gets up and leaves their homeland and travels thousands of miles to another country that doesn't speak the same language that has a completely different culture you know that's just american exceptionalism that we have in our mind that's you know xenophobia um you know there are some people that maybe see america american television shows or whatever and like oh i would like to be an american and typically they do it the right way you know but the vast majority of people aren't dragging their kids you wouldn't drag your kids you no know? i mean i'm listening to you say that i mean and again putting it back into my own life just trying to compare it to myself i don't much want to move to a new city <laughs> in the I same know. state it's hard i mean I and all the work and the logistics and i have stuff and i've got resources Mm-hmm. And I might some of those things might be like, well, I don't really have any family there, or well, I don't have my childhood friends there. That's all my little privilege deciders. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine just taking off to another country with my you know, everything I own in tow. You know? Yeah, and and in a way, it's kind of like I tell Americans, it's 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 kind of a good thing that in a way that we don't understand their straits because what it says is. That our 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 way of living is at such a level that it's difficult for us to understand their way of living and what poor means. So poor to an American, especially a white American, is much different than what poor in to a Honduran person is or to a Guatemalan person. And 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 then so that's kind of cool because that means we have a really wealthy society and we're doing good as a country. But on the other hand, it's kind of bad because we've gotten away from being able to understand other people and empathize Mm. with them. So there's kind of this catch 22 where we want to provide for people and we want to take care of ourselves. But then that, that isolationism and, and not knowing about other cultures and, what they're going through and how our policies are affecting them and causing them to have to leave their homes and come here it you know that's that's part of our problem of being in our privilege i guess yeah no i I totally see that i mean i i find this is very a very hard subject to talk about with with folks i had a, a conversation with a dear friend the other day and and i don't think we necessarily saw eye to eye we had a peaceful conversation which is rare and i think the fact that we were dear friends is what kept it that way but what i thought about in 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 leaving the conversation later i thought if that if we weren't dear friends that conversation probably wouldn't have been so peaceable we were making efforts to have uh, elevated discourse, mm-hmm. you know, even mm-hmm. though we didn't necessarily see eye to eye, we could share points with each other without angering each other. But what I find mm-hmm. more often than not is that it gets really ugly really quickly. And that's yeah. new for me because I don't really get that. I don't, I don't fully, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around why it's so hard to 
have a conversation because when someone says, well, you know, I kind of feel for those people, just something as simple as that yeah. can sort of trigger um, angry discourse. Yeah, can I know. I, I know. Can I jump Go in? Ahead. Yeah, please, so please. I mean, I see a lot of discourse passed around that um, is being parroted by and also seeded out by um, the the administration, Stephen Miller, and then um, like the C, the agents, and the that Facebook group that was um, discovered, mm-hmm. 10, you know, 15. right? Um, just the idea that, well, especially Central American migrants, um, you know, they've been taught to um, say that they're going to seek asylum, but they they won't follow through with that because our asylum laws don't really. Um, apply and so our asylum laws are like a Cold War era set of laws that like they apply pretty well to Cubans, um, Cameroonians, Somalis, Ghanaians. They don't necessarily apply well to Central Americans, M- Nicaraguans, yes, but not to Hondurans, not to Guatemalans, and not to um, Salvadorans usually because. Most of them, not all, but most of them are fleeing, like, pervasive, all-permeating gang violence. Yeah. And our our immigration courts, most IJs view that as just, they call it random criminality. Mm. And they don't view it as um, persecution based on one of the protected I grounds. See. Okay. And with a nexus to, you know, between the persecution and the protected ground that the government is unwilling or unable to stop or punish. And um, so that's true. And so there is motivation to get through a credible fear interview and then if you're paroled, not follow through with seeking asylum if you know enough to know that you're not going to get asylum. Right, I see um, what you're saying. And so the, the, the whole idea is like, well, we have to detain them to make sure that they show up to court so that we can deport them because they're removable. <laughs> right, we're going to remove you anyway. But yeah, and detained, I see. <laughs> detained proceedings move, you know, they're, they're expedited. Um, people do end up languishing in detention for a long time because the appeals process can be so long. And if you are lucky enough to um, either hire an attorney or have access to pro bono counsel, then you know you can go through. You can have a bond hearing and you know, all these things that make the process take longer. But I mean, yesterday we discovered a secret program that they've piloted in El Paso called um, Packer P A C R, and it's like a um, they're keeping people they're gonna like do this super expedited asylum process in border patrol facilities and attorneys have no access no in-person access it's completely illegal i know there's no way i mean there's no due process um but But, but basically this administration does whatever it wants and then it's like okay take us to court waits for the lawsuit yeah take take us to court Keep the ACLU busy, and you know there's so yeah. much to sue over that it takes forever. Right, to do they've it made all. a long, long, bumpy, gnarly tail, and they right. know it. I mean, it's like you're never going to catch the end of it anyway, so right. we'll just do what we want. But so the the what people say, and like it gets filtered down through um, people who don't aren't intimately familiar with the immigration court system or with border patrol or with ICE, but they 
the uniforms are the good guys, the president's the good guy, and these are just economic migrants with a third world mentality, and if they come in here, they're going to spread their third world mentality, and that's what Louisiana's going to become. Well, I'm sorry, have you looked at any statistics about Louisiana lately? Right. Or ever? Right. Like, that's that's what I find more than anything. standard of living is... <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, I don't know anyway. a lot. I mean, I, you're right. I take that common man approach to most of these conversations because mm-hmm. I, most of the conversations I'm having are with common people, right? You know, and what I realize is that we don't know enough. I mean, that's just what it boils down to. Is and, and the issue, just as you said, is but we so. We also don't listen to experts. Well, we that's true. Well, but we know. even then, a lot of the experts. I mean, you would think that that's John true. Homan, former commissioner of ICE, would right. be an expert, but, but he repeats statistics that are from these anti-immigrant right. hate groups. Right. So, yeah, you know, that's true. Absolutely that's, true. That I, I feel that if you knowingly and purposefully right. mislead the public, the public as a public official, you should mm-hmm. not be a public official because mm. they, you know, he'll say upwards of 90 percent of asylum seekers don't show up for their hearings. And that's, that's not lie. true. It's actually the opposite. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? So and I and I think a lot of ordinary citizens, like you're saying, what they hear is, oh, people, people, asylum seekers are coming here and they just say, I fear for my life and I was raped and or I was beaten mm-hmm. up by a gang or right. my life was threatened and then we give them asylum. It's actually it's really so difficult, difficult to get no, asylum. I, yes. I've sat it's in on really trial hard. after trial in the last six months. Yeah. yeah, the majority of people who are what they term out of status or undocumented in this country came here legally by visas and right. so forth. They've just overstayed their visas. So the majority of the people that the president is saying are undocumented and here and need to get out did not come through the southern border. So, you know, they came on a, on a plane and then they developed family and stayed here. Right. And then, yeah. you know, so... It's it's so that's the biggest thing is just fighting, fighting the disinformation and stuff. And, you know, I always ask people when they're like, well, you know, they're going to come here and make this a third world country. And 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 and, but they they know the loopholes on the law. And I'm like, well, which is it? They're so stupid. stupid, Right. (laughs) Third world country. And they're so smart that they know everything about our immigration laws. And they're also taking all the jobs, but they're also all going to be public charges. But they're all lazy, yeah. All lazy, all going to rely on on public assistance, but they they took all the roofing jobs, all of them. Yeah. And you know what you'll find, too, in communities like y'all's is you'll find people saying, you know, they'll they'll repeat the, the rhetoric from from. Trump and from the Border Patrol and stuff. But then, you know, when ICE comes to town and raids the chicken plant and stuff, they're like, man, they took Maria. Maria and I were really good, good friends. friends. Right. They took my housekeeper. <laughs> well, that yeah. seems they to me. They took my housekeeper's husband. Yeah, I've heard that one. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm helpless. Sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I have something I need to tell you about. You may or may not know this, but this podcast is produced in the city of Sulphur, Louisiana, one of the sister cities that make up Southwest Louisiana. All of my childhood memories are wrapped up in the city of Sulphur. It's my home, and it's been a good home for most of my life. There is a growing diversity of unique businesses, services, and events in Sulphur, each with a rich and colorful story to tell about their particular place in this little jewel on the west side of the Calcasieu River. 
My mission is to promote good news, to put a positive signal out in the world. That's why my team at Parker Brand Creative Services has created the new brand, Sulphur Today. Here's how it works. Post your Sulphur event, service, photos, videos, or information using the hashtag Sulphur Today. That's it. My team and I will scan and curate those posts through the social media platforms we've put in place. Before you make your post, just type hashtag, that's a pound sign for the folks that don't know what a hashtag is, and the words sulfur today with no space. My team at Parker Brand is monitoring this tag right now, and they're ready to create positive digital curb appeal for our city by sharing all the very best sulfur has to offer through the Sulfur Today social media pages. As the Sulfur Today project grows, we will be scheduling interviews and video sessions with businesses, events, and services so they can tell their story of Sulfur Today in a series of ongoing micro-documentaries. Look for the eye-catching Sulfur Today sign when you're out and about, and be ready, we may be stopping by to visit you for a photo op. And don't forget to stop by the Parker Brand Creative Services Studio in Sulphur to grab a Sulphur Today decal for your vehicle or business. We want people visiting our area to know that they can find all the wonderful things we have to offer with ease and be a part of our history by utilizing the Sulphur Today pages or by searching the Sulphur Today hashtag. Do you want to help us tell the story of Sulphur Today? Here's what I need you to do right now. Visit and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash sulfur today. And be sure to share positive sulfur information and post often using the hashtag sulfur today. Now, back to find the good news. That seems to be a really big part of what's going on, too, is that just what y'all just described is that when it's not close to you, it's that out of sight, out of mind apathy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy to to hate someone that you don't know or or to to demonize them and paint them in a certain light and go, oh, those people over there. But when they're in your own family or they're in your own community or it's somebody that you have an intimate relationship with, that the bonds form and they become human. Mm -hmm. The language Mm -hmm. that I hear is all about dehumanizing and separating. You told a story in one of your interviews that I thought was really interesting. You'd said, and and I'll let you tell it, but it was a story about you, you stopped a family at the border and maybe a lawyer was with them and he spoke really good English and he asked you some questions about the Canadian border. Yeah, well, when I was an Asian, um, I can, in my mind, I can see the exact hilltop I finally caught up to the group on north of 94, north of Tecate and it was nighttime in middle of the night and out in Campo, a lot of times you have to wait two or three hours for transport to get out to the middle of nowhere to find you. And so as my Spanish increased and got better, then I started listening to their stories and being able to understand. And this one mm-hmm. uh, man, who I think he was probably older than I was at the time. I was probably 26 or 27. And he, um, he spoke perfect English and he had a law degree. And um, I said, what are you doing? you know crossing illegally and he says well there's no jobs down there do you not know anything that's going on in mexico and i'm like well no not really you know because i didn't have to (laughs) to. i didn't have to know because i'm a white american and i'm wearing a border patrol agent uniform and so we got to talking and and he said do you treat do you meaning border patrol do y'all treat 
Canadians this way? And I said, well, there are Border Patrol agents on the Canadian border. And he said, but do y'all hunt them down in the middle of the night like this? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I think it's mostly Canadians coming across trying to avoid taxation on, like, cigarettes and alcohol or something like that and bringing stuff back. But I said, no, it's not like the southern border. It's different down here. And he said, and why is, is that any less criminal than... <laughs> but, yeah, so that's what he said. He's like, well, what's the difference? And he's... And I was like... But I'm like looking around and I'm all uncomfortable because I'm right. realizing that my answer is going to be because you're Mexican you know because of the color of your skin and at first I I think I said something like well I think because a lot of Canadians are more educated and he goes I have a college degree and I'm like you know yeah uh, you're trying to avoid the answer of what you you know it's like under the skin like uh yeah and it really and I remember we talked a lot because it took so long for I think they ended up having to send a supervisor or something out with a van and then, so I'm walking him down the mountain and, and to the van and, and he's the last one to get in and he turns around and he says to me, he says, you're a good person and you need to think about what you're doing. Wow. 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 That's really so sticky. how long after that was your whole like Saul to St. Paul transformation? <laughs> well, a long time because was I, what I ended up doing is I just, I got really tired of I mean, I liked hiking and I liked tracking and I liked vehicle chases and all that's really fun and all that. But um, the fact of the matter, it wears on you time after time arresting families and people crying. We're like, you're hunting people. Yeah. Yeah, you're hunting people. And, And it's kind of a cool skill to have if you're doing search and rescue. It's not a cool skill to have if you're hunting people. Arresting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, I would take details, which are like special assignments I would put in for like a drug narcotics task force and do that for a while. Or I do prosecutions for a while and then that's how I ended up at intelligence at Sector Intel. And my thought was, you know, I won't have to arrest families and I'll be getting the smugglers that are doing this. That's, That's people that are, you know, telling migrants cross out in these dangerous areas yeah. and you know still with the border patrol mantra about that and stuff and then i found you know as i developed these cases in one case in particular against the boss of my own station who was the one that was organizing the smuggling of narcotics into the county <laughs> um that the border patrol did not care and they would cover up for their agents for anything and then they came wow. after me so it was like i tried to whistle blow and i got shut down and uh. Gotcha. Life was threatened, and so yeah. that's why I, I came home one night and I was just telling my wife, "I'm like, I'm going to die out there, and for nothing. I don't even, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I agree with getting the drug smugglers. I agree with getting these people that are, are abusing the migrants, but uh, it's just such a messed up system. It's right. such a messed up system, and I just, you know, I just had to leave. Yeah. Well. That's probably a good segue. I mean, you know, we talked about going in the cave and then lighting the lamps on the way out. So that that brings me to what I really want to talk about, and which I think is the the good news, which is the new border vision that you shared with me. I read through that document, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Not only did I 
my heart kind of quiver as I read it. But then I started thinking, this is just good policy for dealing with your neighbors. <laughs> this is good <laughs> policy for dealing <laughs> with people right. that you it's encounter in life. Humanizing. And so the way I kind of I kind of wanted to phrase that was, you know, how do you secure the border and make it a healthy place and, you know, not a place of discord amongst people and corruption, right? A place to be, you know, used that that can be politicized in a negative way. Um, What does this vision look like and what's your role in in, in an advisory role and how are you involved in that? Well, what people need to understand, I think, is, and they don't realize, is there are a lot of organizations down here on the border that have been working on this for for decades. Yeah, this isn't new, right? This isn't just the last. No, it's not new to them because they've been living here and dealing with this. And and as you know, I, I compare it to when I was first an agent before the first wall went up with the Clinton administration. The kids used to come across and say, "Can I play on the?" you know, the flat field in Decadier and I'd be like, yeah, let's play soccer. And we play soccer with them. And it was more of a community back and forth. And there were bad people and we chased the bad people, but there were also, you know, it it was, they were our neighbors, you know? And um, what it's turned into after the fence came up, like I never ever got it rocked in my vehicle, you know, where they throw rocks at your vehicle when you're going down the border road. I never had that until the fence came up. So really? the fence brought all that, yeah, and it, it, you know, a lot of people don't realize they think of the borders like San Diego or they think of it as, as like El Paso and they don't understand that there are thousands of miles in between all these big cities where there's all these little dots of towns and right. we rely on each other both in the north and the south side to take care of each other and there's families divided by these lines and, and so it created a lot of animosity and a lot of pain and a lot of hurt mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of death, to be honest with you. And so what the Southern Border Community Coalition at southernborders.org has done is is we realized that we don't want people who work in this area, they don't want it to just be all about what the anti-immigrant hate groups and this administration specifically is saying about immigrants, that we need to put out a message of... of uh, good healthy communities and that there are communities down here on the border that are just like communities in Louisiana and that they want their kids to go to good schools, they want their streets to be clean, they want their parks to be clean, they want clean air, clean water they want to be able to go to church just like you can mm-hmm. and they want to be able to you know, feed their families and stuff without going down the street and being stopped by a border patrol agent every time they leave the house and ask their citizenship because they're brown oh. or they don't want to, to send their kid down to the corner store for a jug of milk and worry that a border patrol agent's going to shoot him because he thought his cell phone was a gun. Right. And, you know, they don't, you know, this is what it looks like when you militarize a border. Right. Yeah. It, it's, is a lot of, it's not just about the immigrants. It's about, or the migrants. It's, it's about, the, yeah, people the, the residents here. of the border the residents right. of the border right and and it's just it just makes common sense and it can be done and they they want their border areas to be safe they just don't want to live under this regime and you really feel right. like it's it feels like a war zone when you're down there really like i think 
Yeah, oh, totally. I can go down to the San Ysidro Port of Entry, which is the largest port of entry in the entire world. And I can, you know, stand out there with a sign that says, you know, asylum is not a crime. And all around me are the locals walking to and from the markets and the stores and maybe going through the port or whatever. And the majority of them are Latinos, and they will not say one word to me. And it is because they are the ones that live there. I'm a white woman that's coming from higher up in San Diego, and it causes them problems. So when I leave, they're the ones that pay the price. And so yeah. when we go into communities to protest or we go into communities to, to, to say things, we always have to consider what the community says and what the community's needs are and what is good for them. Mm-hmm. So when we make laws about the border and we decide how we're going to enforce, you know, we call it, we prefer to call it like a border governance uh, instead of like border enforcement, because Mm. border enforcement is like saying, you know, uh, St. Charles enforcement, like you're all a bunch of crooks or something Mm -hmm. as opposed to St. Charles (laughs) governance, you know? And so it's, it's, we want to have a say, they want to have a say in their communities, and we want our, our leaders to be listened to, and, and instead of just, this is what's going to happen, we're going to put, you know, 2,000 Border Patrol agents down there in the San Ysidro area, and they have unlimited power, and they don't have to have search warrants, and they can do whatever right. they need to do to enforce the border, you know, it, it, or police the border. So. We just think that for far too long, this buildup that we've seen from the time that I was an agent to now, it's big business. You know, these higher up agents, they leave the Border Patrol, they go work for defense contractors. I mean, Mm -hmm. the amount of money, I think when I was an agent, they spent on border projects and border agencies, they spent like, maybe $1.6 billion a year. Now they spend about at least $24 billion a year and less people are crossing, you know, without inspection. So why is that that we're spending more? Um, So it's just about making our communities what we want them to be, what we, we think people should see. And then, you know, the, all these border cities are, have been proven to have less crime than many American cities that are in the interior and stuff. But you don't hear that because no. that's not right. the rhetoric that goes out. So what what this is asking for is just having a say-so and having, you know, a, a little bit of, uh, of discussion of how the communities down here on the border look instead of looking like a war zone. Yeah. Well, no, that's definitely going back to my experience, you know, my little experience of going down there. It was like, uh, the language was all very scary. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. and and all you have is your imagination to go on and then, Mm -hmm. uh, you can imagine a lot of things, you know? Well, and the border patrols encourage that because they find that the more that they, hype that up to what you were talking about your experience in Brownsville and it's not to say that Brownsville isn't known for narcotic smuggling it is but the more that they hype that up the the more money that they'll get the more people will consider them honorable and come to their aid because that's how we are after 9-11 you know and, and, we, and we want to support our law enforcement officers and so forth but in turn 
this is what it causes is it causes this this false sense of of chaos that's going on at the border and that's not really what's going on at all yeah and and, and these human lives i mean migrants and asylum seekers are kind of caught in the in the process of this i mean people just human people granted i mean amongst just my own community i, I say this to people all the time as that you know there are bad people right here in your own community right. that are that are doing terrible things you know uh, you go street well, to street to street and they're there they look like you and they go to church with you good. and they shop at the stores you shop with shop at and you don't have those same fears for right. Right. because they they feel like they're you know they're they're you they're one of you mm-hmm. yeah you know, so we don't ask and, those questions i mean everybody should be given the benefit of the doubt no matter where they're from until right. they and give you process. cause yeah until they give you cause and and i it's interesting because when you look at the statistics over all the years of, of immigrants the percentages of criminals are less than one percent but the percentages of border patrol agents who have been arrested for crimes is really really high <laughs> it's like really? it's like at least 15 to 20 percent they think the, the they think it's maybe twice as much of border patrol agents are corrupt so you know and that's one of the reasons why i left was like that the people that i arrested on a daily basis their only crime was trying to seek a better life and, and a mm-hmm. job and, and and risking a lot to do it and with their children and but the people that I worked with, well, let's see, hmm, they raped me, they've abused me, they've shot mm. at me, they, you know, and 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 it's constant, it's constant in the border patrol, and it's like God, if you guys, I, I've never understood this. I've always felt like you know, if you guys would just deal with your bad agents, people will respect you a lot more because you're rooting out the you know the mm-hmm. bad seeds or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they don't do it, and and. So it's just well, it's like when that face a, that Facebook page came out, Laura, and you mentioned it earlier, and you started seeing what was being talked about. I and even the, look. Yeah, I mean, the images blew my mind, and I thought, well, you know, this is what you do, and this is the face of this entity when nobody's looking. You and know? it's the proof that it's systemic. It backs well, up what you're saying. It's a culture. Yeah, and you know, and as soon as that came out, my phone started blowing up, and, oh, and I'm, sure. I'm like. Yeah, and they said, is this normal? And I'm like, yeah, that's like nothing. And, you know, that's normal behavior for Border Patrol agents. And I said, so Carla Provost will come out and say, this does not represent the men and women I know at the Border Patrol who are honorable and blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's like, and sure enough, she did immediately. And then within 24 hours, the next thing that the commissioner then, McClellan, said, McAleenan, and I think, yeah, I have a hard time with his name. <laughs> McAleenan said, um, well, we've known about it for three years, but we've been monitoring it. Mm, we use yeah. it as intel. And then CNN, I think, <laughs> called me, and they said, what do you think of that statement? And I said, well, that statement tells me that there's higher-ups on there who are members because right. <laughs> wow. that's what they <laughs> We're Arto monitoring Pato the situation. The, yeah. You know, Art Del of the union's a member of it, and some other guy named Garza, I think, from the union is on it. And sure enough, Carla Provost is a member on it. But no, she didn't do anything unethical. It's like, come on, you guys, you know. And then they just kind of wait it out, and nothing ever happens, and everybody forgets about it. About, mm-hmm. about the mm-hmm. next scandal, like this 
assistant yeah. chiefs who kidnapped the junior agent and he kidnapped her and raped her and he's being charged in uh, Pima County in Arizona mm-hmm. for it and he's married to the chief Gloria Chavez of El Paso sector but she's going out saying he doesn't represent the men and women of the border patrol and it's like he's been he's your husband 24 years he's an assistant chief come on you well know? Jen I mean how do you change this I mean it sounds like it's old and, and ingrained well, you start by not tolerating it I mean you yeah. know the first thing that Carla Provost did was she allowed him to resign after she knew he was being charged by this and let me tell you to be charged by another agency and not get that professional courtesy you know, that they might extend to you because you're also law enforcement, you must be really bad and they must have some serious evidence on you for this. Wow. Ah, okay. This is really bad what's going on with this guy. Um, Assistant Chief Gus Zamora, I believe is his name. He's innocent until proven guilty, but right. it's, you know, it's not looking too good. But for, she allowed him to resign and therefore his border patrol career doesn't get tainted he gets his pension he gets to resign and all that other stuff yeah, he should have been allowed to resign and then yeah even his wife yeah his wife all of a sudden is giving interviews and she wouldn't give interviews before and I don't blame his wife his wife is not responsible for his right, behavior right. not at all but she is responsible as the chief in the United States border patrol when she goes out and says, this is not like the men and women I know of the Border Patrol, it's like you're married to the dude. <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, at least just be quiet about it and say no comment, strange. you know? Yeah, I mean, unless you're really good at being two separate people, which, I mean, I'm not very, very good at it. I mean, you are who you are. I mean, you're not, you're not, he's not hiding that, that very well. You know what I mean? Well, I no- know. I, I, yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, he groomed her. You can see yeah, that he yeah, she's like the groomed children. A victim and here. I had a mentor in the Border Patrol that did that to me, too. And I did not realize that I was being groomed for that. Not necessarily that this man would have sexually assaulted me, but that I was being groomed until this story came out. And mm-hmm. it just really kind of like threw me for a loop. I'm like, man, you know, it was just. It was I got I got a question. So, like, when you finally did start talking about these things openly and honestly, what was the what was the the initial uh, acceptance of your story? Was there were, were there a lot of voices going, "Wow, I can't believe that," and then just support in support, or were there people that were like, "I don't know about this"? There's there's different categories. There's um, right wingers who are inclined not to believe anything, mm. um, and they're like, "Oh, you're just a liar." You know, it's like, why would I lie about this? I don't get paid to do this. Why would I lie about this? And um, and and they don't have much to do with the Border Patrol. But um, I had a lot of agents write me privately and thank me and tell me their own stories. Oh, wow. And how they're glad that somebody's finally speaking out. Um, and then I have a lot of people on the left-hand side who go way far to the left and are like I hate the border patrol they should all be in jail yeah. Bunch of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bunch of, and, and I'm not saying that I understand where these people are coming from because they're directly affected by this obviously and and, and, and I understand where their anger comes from mm-hmm. but I also feel that we're not going to get anywhere in the society you know 
lumping everybody into one giant. Oh, right. yeah. But Twitter's um, the best place for that. I, I yeah, love getting yeah, yelled like at because stuff. attorneys yeah. and, and legal assistants are just, we're just playing the game and keeping the keeping it going so we can make money. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're making so, so much, much money. So much money. That's a low bono immigration practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 My son and I have this conversation almost weekly and it's, I think it's because it bothers him. He's, he's young. He's in high school, but he said, you know, how do we, how do you do it, dad? He said, how do we, when, when you are talking to somebody else uh, and you go, well, you support this policy or you support this entity and these policies hurt people. How, how, and I'm one of those people, let's say, you know, as he says, he goes, I'm in that, that umbrella of people that could potentially be affected by this policy in the future. He said, how am I to not let their support of that taint my entire relationship with them? You know, and so he's struggling with that right now. And I thought, I'm man, still struggling with that at 33 years old. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very difficult. And I think that's what I see happening in our country is we're or at least for me, my experience is I'm going, wow. You know, you've got family members that you love who have who support policy people. They support people who support policies that hurt other people, and it's so hard. It's like the Baldwin quote. Um, let me make sure I get it right. I find that hard and hard to navigate. I mean, because they go, "Yeah, my son has a point." I'm like, you know, morally, and 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 if you're lean, trying to lean towards the long arm of justice for people, what is the right move here? I mean, how do you navigate that? I think we have to realize that in our society right now, there's so much intentional polarization that um, it's, I think the majority of Americans are really in that kind of day-to-day struggle, just trying to pay for their medical bills and take care of their parents and take care of their kids. and you have such a disparity of income and I think that is what's lending itself to people polarizing themselves politically and and because everybody just feels so on the edge and everything feels and kind of is at times so monumental and so desperate Mm. you know well and and Go ahead. Oh, I just think we are at a really, um, we're at a turning point uh, as a nation. I think where we have to really face, like the the colonial history of white supremacy. I just lost it because my phone died. Oh, sure. So I had a quote from James Baldwin, who is um, one of the most important American writers ever, and it's and this one you see a lot, like or at least I see it a lot lately, and it's that. Um, we can disagree and still love each other unless our disagreement is rooted in my oppression and your denial mm. of my humanity. Yeah. Right. And um, I, t- I talk to right wing uh, people all the time. One kind of found me at Clint, Texas, outside of one of the detention centers uh, a couple months back. And I said, we can talk, but you will not be rude. And you will not yell and you will not curse and we will agree to disagree on some things. And he did. And we had a really good conversation and, and we didn't agree on everything. Yeah. Uh, but we had a, a, a very good conversation. He was surprised at, at how much we did agree on mm. and that I wasn't for open borders and that right. I was offended when somebody ripped an American flag off and put a Mexican one up on some detention center, you know, and it's like, you know, I think that it, it certainly 
not the media, but the way media is in sound bites and stuff tends to cause a lot of these issues. I don't, I don't like being on TV because it's so fast and you just don't really get to talk like we can here. Yeah. I love yeah. this, this video. Yeah, this setting is great. Yeah, this, this way of doing it is fantastic. But uh, I do really think that there's a lot to be said for uh, this constant competition that our government politicians have put us in, whether it's getting into the best charter school or it's living in the best neighborhood or it's having clean water versus lead in your water or it's this or that. Mm. So I think, you know, we look back at our parents and grandparents after World War II and they really, it's funny, a lot of them would say, oh, I did it all myself and blah, blah, blah. But they don't think of the things that were afforded to them by the government during those times that helped produce one of the strongest middle classes ever. And we don't have that nowadays. And when you don't, when you have insecurity, whether it's perceived insecurity or just around the corner insecurity that could happen if one person gets sick or your car goes Mm -hmm. down, that that is a stressor and, and, and that causes you to constantly, it's almost kind of a PT, it's like a national PT SD disorder that we have where we're constantly looking out for the next shoe to drop. And if that means I got to take you out to protect myself and my kids, then I'm not going to agree with you. And you just go over there and sit in the corner. And I think, I think that's a lot of it. I really do think that's why you're, you're, you're speaking my language, honestly, because I talk about this all the time on the show is that our, our lives, the lives that we're living really outpace our ability to keep up with them. And Mm -hmm. that just keeps us in, you said it keeps us in this sort of state of survival mode and where Mm -hmm. we're living in like a little, layer of fear of what's mm-hmm. next you know is uh, if i don't have uh, my a client doesn't pay a bill and then that throws me into this cycle of debt that i can't get out of and that's a fear uh motivator and so we mm-hmm. end up being motivated by all these little fear factors and it ke- just keeps us in a ball of mess and we can't think about our our there's no time for tenderness and compassion and kindness mm-hmm. and mercy and being mm-hmm. good and helping my and my neighbor. I, I don't have time for that because I'm too busy mm-hmm. just trying to hold it all together. Mm-hmm. And, and I think everything feels like such a personal attack. And when people, they, they always hit me up on Twitter or Facebook and they say, what can I do? What can I do? Yeah. But I live in Iowa. What can I do? Mm-hmm. I live in Oklahoma or something. And I'm like, you know what you can do? You can see your neighbor down the street who maybe is an immigrant or is from a different country, or maybe uh, your neighbor wears a hijab or somewhere in your city, there's a Muslim group or something. And you can go and have dinner with that person and talk to them. Mm. That's all it takes. And if you're, if you're afraid of Muslims, that then go and and meet a Muslim and go have dinner with them and, or, or make them dinner or sit down somewhere mm-hmm. and start talking. Not yeah. try to disagree. Just start talking. Right. That's it. Yeah. And break some bread. And that's all you got to do to get this started. Yeah. That's all you, you know, do. It's so funny how 
how little it takes to do that too. I'll tell you a little short story and it's not earth shattering, but it was just a nice little illustration of what you're talking about. My son and I head up to North Louisiana every year in December and we spend a little day together at a big Christmas festival up there. And we always kind of parked in the same spot, but last year there was nowhere to park. And there was, I said, well, there's a little, I think there's a church around the corner. I told him, you know, I've been there many years. I said, there's a church around the corner that I think does parking. Well, when we went around the corner, we saw that that church was a mosque for students. And so, so we stopped and we we pulled in and, and the guy came out and we talked and you know I'm wearing a, a crucifix and he had you know come out with the kids and they they took our money and we ended up talking for like 30 or 45 minutes and it was just this loving invigorating dialogue and then my mm-hmm. son and I left and that's a small little encounter but unfortunately I said when we were walking through the crowd we actually heard some other people going I'm not parking down there a bunch of you know and I was mm-hmm. like wow and he and my son was just like this really blows my mind how within just moments of one encounter, you can have the exact opposite encounter. And I said, yeah, I said, and that's what's going on right now mm-hmm. in our culture, in our country. Mm-hmm. We got to have these little encounters more often is basically what he and I decided mm-hmm. is that just exactly what you said in these small ways. It doesn't have to be, you know, this big um, thing that you have to profess, right? It can just be the right. small, a small meal, a small conversation in kindness and openness and start looking for, uh, not, not just find common ground, but also be interested in what makes us different. I mean, sometimes it's just fun and beautiful to, mm-hmm. to find things out and you go, wow, that's nothing like the way I do it or the way I live, but it's fascinating nonetheless, you know? Right. Right. And I think that when we do that, we see that, the goal of everybody is to have friends and family and loved ones and to be able to feed ourselves and, and those loved mm-hmm. ones and and to be able to shelter. And, and that's really mostly all anybody really wants. I mean, I don't suggest that if you're Muslim to go up to somebody who's yelling racist terms at you and try and give them a hug. I don't suggest that. Mm-hmm. But I am suge- suggesting, especially to white people who who maybe are on the right, unfortunately, I hate to say the right side of things because there are plenty of people on the right who are, who are not having issues like this and do not agree with what's going on. But it, if you are like, you know, I just, I, I don't know, I've just been told that all immigrants are criminals or something. Well, you know what? And and you're not really a hateful person. You just need to meet an immigrant and you need to talk to that person and you need to ask them, what is it that you went through? What is it that you love about America? And you'll find that the fact that they're willing to risk everything to come to this country, just like, especially if you're white, your ancestors did to come to this country. It's the same. Mm-hmm. It's just a different time. It's the same. Yeah. You know? I always say this. I always compare the Central American um, migration to Louisiana, particularly. Well, really everywhere between Houston and Mobile um, to the mm-hmm. Acadians. And that's our people, mm-hmm. Oren and me, um, mm-hmm. to, the, to that migration. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a pretty similar trajectory. And you see it everywhere. I mean, you know, I used to, when I was a district attorney uh, in Mobile. I was a district attorney investigator for my internship, and one of my cases was in Bayou, Bla- Bayou La Battery. That's how long I've been out of South. That's mm-hmm. our food, so. And there's a lot of Cajuns in Bayou La Battery. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, um, but there's a lot of people from Vietnam in Bayou mm-hmm. La Battery as well. And yes. so 
it's not as isolated as we would like to think. And yeah. there are neighbors around you, and you know they're there. Just that's all you have to do. Yeah. That's all you have to do. Well, I mean, and then you fast forward through time. I mean, sometimes we look at things in such a small little span of time, and, and a part of that is again survival mind keeps you right there in the moment worrying about just what's next in the future and just what's happened in the past and you're you're never really present but if you give it enough time i mean i kind of chuckle about this because you brought that point up and i go now we have cajun festivals and we celebrate cajun music and cajun food it's a it is a celebration but in that original you know patient zero zone whenever the first you know the first cajuns come here the first acadians that's Mm -hmm. not what that was it was very we had been exiled deported to haiti and then negotiated you know a place here but it was like land that nobody wanted and yeah everyone was like you guys stay y'all stay down there yeah you Mm -hmm. can't come into new orleans Exactly. You need to learn English, but English people don't want to have anything to do with you. So good luck with that. Right. And, it's very know, similar. Yeah. And here we are, similar. you know, all this time later. And now it's a celebration. We celebrate it. We've wrapped our arms around it. We're proud yes. of it. And, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's everyone says, point, oh, we did it the right way. Yeah. Like, it's like, not no, exactly. There was no immigration. There was no INS. There was no USCIS then. There was no INS. There was no, like, we negotiated some some land from spanish louisiana like yeah but it was i wouldn't call it the right way the biggest group that's coming over at any one time is the group that's you know that's you know whether it was the irish or the italians or you know at one point though they were not considered to be white right yeah you know and so it just goes on and on and i mean and then if you're going to argue that then then how are you going to deal with uh the african-americans who were brought here against their will i mean you know so oh we can just argue round and round and it just why it's just so much energy spent on arguing and it's just so and so much of this concept of a border really comes down to um this construct of what whiteness is and what it means to be white i mean you brought it up earlier yourself like the the um the migrant man from Mexico who asked you when you were an agent do you guys mm-hmm. hunt Canadians down like this mm-hmm. right. you know right. um, I mean no it's we, true there is a cultural understanding of our northern border that's much different from our cultural understanding of our southern border yeah yeah the Canadians are our friends yeah they just sometimes they're just basically like us they're just, they're just basically us but with like you know Provincial it's socialized healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, sometimes it's... they speak French. You know. Yeah, but so do we sometimes. Yeah. yeah that's true. There you go. It's yeah. true. I know it yeah. is. This has been fascinating. I mean, I I think it was healthy too the way we talked about everything. I mean, it's I think it's good to do this and have honest conversations. And I'm happy. I know it. I'm I hate to pause the program, but I want to ask you something. Did you know that you can help me and my team at Parker Brand Creative Services grow the Find the Good News signal? For less than a fancy cup of coffee, you can become an Early Risers Club patron on our Patreon page. What's Patreon? Well, it's a way for creators to fund their projects by pooling support from those really passionate people that believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in what we're doing with Find the Good News? I hope you do. We believe that there's already enough negative news in the world even right here at home, and that good people doing good works deserve a platform to speak from too. 
That's why we created Find the Good News, and we believe in that simple mission. Maybe you believe in it too. If you do believe in finding and sharing good news, then head over to our Patreon page right now or check out the link in the show description. For a commitment of $3.33 a month, you can join the Early Risers Club of Find the Good News Patreon supporters and get access to the B-Sides, a patrons-only podcast with the crew behind Find the Good News, Parker Brand Creative Services. Each time we level up, the Patreon rewards will get bigger. If you're tired of old news, bad news, and fake news, help support Find the Good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. That's patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. Now, back to the episode. There's a part of the show that if you, you listen to Laura's episode, you said, actually, oh, right? Oh, you listened to it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So it's, it's <laughs> called... <laughs> she did. She listened that was to a, it. It was a long time ago in um, terms of my life and, and where I am in life now. <laughs> I know, right? A lot's changed, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, when you were on the show, I mean, what's your, been your cycle? Career. It's been Yeah. Um, I was working in marketing. Yeah. Uh, now I'm a legal assistant. Uh, basically, what happened was I um, met a lawyer who uh, has a satellite office here, and I was taking friends who were asylum you know, had a, yeah. needed to file for asylum taking them to meet her and one day I cornered her into a dinner and drinks meeting and made her give me a job and, um, <laughs> and so she did so um, we just hired another attorney we're growing most of our clients are in, in detention in um, Oakdale and that are in Overland in the Allen Parish Safety Complex okay and Pine Prairie we also have some in Wynn and LaSalle and wow. um, then Bazile is the women's prison so we have some some there. Nice. And Jackson. I see Southwest Louisiana Correctional Center on here. Is that actually being South used? Louisiana. South Louisiana. Oh, okay, okay. It's women. So Gina, LaSalle, Ice, and Gina, and South Louisiana Correction, those were the only two that were open at the beginning of 2019. I see. And then everybody, or maybe mid-2018, a couple more were added and then now we've we're up to it's hard to not look at that and like just it reminds me of like oil wells i mean that's what i think of is just dollar signs it's like hey we can plop one here we can plop one there we can make some money about making money because all of these i mean look at where we are jonesboro monroe uh st tammany parish sheriff's office even has beds open like these are all places where the where the the prison or the jail is a huge part of the local economy. Pine Prairie, Allen Parish so Public Safety Complex, and Overland. Yeah. Yes. These yeah. are poor communities that don't really have the the agriculture that they used to. Yeah, and they were already relying on. I mean, Louisiana used to have the. Um, most number of prisoners per capita in the nation and um, criminal justice reform came along with our most recent gubernatorial election and that's been touted as um, a big victory of Governor Edwards and and I you know I appreciate a lot about Governor Edwards especially um, looking at what he inherited uh, from the last governor but he has done nothing to stop or discourage sheriffs and um and mm-hmm. these, um, also the private, you know, prisons, uh, the Geo Group and the um, LaSalle prisons from contracting with ICE uh, mm-hmm. and just basically replacing the black bodies that were imprisoned with brown ones. Yep. Now, do y'all, in, do y'all follow uh, Dr. Reverend Barber? I don't think I know I'm that I'm not name. familiar with him. 
Oh my goodness. We're going to have to. My be phone's done, dead, right? or I would do I, it right now, Jen. <laughs> I'm not. I'm. I, I don't consider myself a religious woman, but I do consider myself as somebody who tries to practice Jesus' teachings, and just like I try and practice other people's teachings, and 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 um, I believe in acts and not just saying things. And Reverend Barber, he's taken up the poor people's campaign, mm-hmm. and what he tries to argue is that, and he does so very gracefully, I might add is that the same systems that, you know, that brought us slavery and brought us Jim Crow, and and you can read this in the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander also, is these are the same systems that are bringing us this private prison industry. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's... Detention and everything. But what gets wrapped up in and what people don't understand in these poor white communities is this is also done intentionally and wraps them up as right. well. Right. It's. And, I mean, it's. this is the yeah. same as when there were arguments that we couldn't get rid of the plantation agriculture because there would be no economy in the South. Um, so when you... I mean, this is a, a direct line from the plantations to the prisons in, in the South. Absolutely. If you get a chance to ever see him, he's based out of, North, I think, North Carolina. Okay. But he's touring all over the country all the time. And you ever get a chance to see uh, Reverend Barber, B-A-R-B-E-R, Okay. Um, and his followers, and they have a group called Repairers of the Breach. Oh, wow. And I, w- I, w- I went to El Paso name. with him and spoke before his congregation, and everybody was there from Muslims to Jewish people, everybody, non believers, yeah. gay, straight, everybody was there. And it was fantastic. And we went down to Juarez, which is very dangerous, mm-hmm. but we went down there. I mean, the man is just incredible and, and you cannot help but feel whatever you want to call it the spirit or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it when you're around this man and and he's definitely somebody to follow and he's he wants everybody to to belong and he wants everybody to realize that and even white people that this is keeping them down as well mm-hmm. so yeah yeah no we'll have to check him out for sure i know that reminded me of um the audiobook I'm listening to is uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. So it's mm-hmm. obviously intended for, you know, for a white audience. Um, but it's it's a really good toolbox for, like, envisioning yourself as a white person as part of the solution mm-hmm. um, in a way that isn't um, overstepping, in a way that's respectful, you know, of the of the experience of those who've you know, been on the receiving end of, of racism. Mm. Um, but, but you still, you, you see, um, a constructive way to be part of the solution when you're reading or listening to, to Dr. Kendi's, um, ideas. It's not, uh, it doesn't feel so hopeless. Cause I, you know, I go through periods where I just wonder how we're ever going to course correct when the very foundation of our nation, you know, involved, what it involved you know chattel slavery well you know it's interesting too i'm just sitting here listening to you talk and and some of the things we've talked about and i Mm -hmm. i've had this thought a few times and if i can articulate it properly and the feeling for me when i when i talk to people about the border is that i i feel like the folks i'm talking to most of the time feel like it's a a a patriotic issue Mm -hmm. not a racist issue Mm -hmm. and when you start Mm -hmm. to illustrate all the racial issues that are infused in it and that it's not 
about being mm-hmm. a patriot at all. It's actually infused with these core mm-hmm. racist markers. Mm-hmm. Then the conversation gets really strange because it turns into it makes me realize how many I guess people want to be patriots, right? It's it's like mm-hmm. we want to believe we're patriots and and somehow wrap the flag all around this, you know, and paint it red, white and blue and and it's not. It's not well, about being a patriot I at mean, all. There's it, so it is so much discourse that um gets classified as patriotic that is racist. You know, like it, it's already infused into Right. um into don't you think that, what we that think of as patriotic just- at times. I don't think argument. it has to be that way. No. And this, I think this argument of what it means to be like a Christian or what it means to be a patriot, what it means to be an American, is all the, the stuff that we're given is all too easy. I mean, you know, yeah. because it's like I was talking with a police officer um, in Louisville, Kentucky recently where I was speaking, and which is a wonderful city. I absolutely loved it. And he listened to my speech. Um, he said, and I was, I was waiting cause he asked to talk to, he went and saw me speak and then he came afterwards and he was in uniform and he said, I, I'd like to talk to you. And I'm like, Oh gosh, here we go. He's going to say how oh, I'm anti-law enforcement and I don't, you know, this and that. But he was like, it was so refreshing to hear you talk. And, and, and people just need to understand that, you know, saying thank you for your service doesn't make you patriotic. Wearing a red light, white and blue t-shirt does not make you patriotic telling the police that you you're never going to question anything you do does not make you patriotic you know and so being a patriot also like being a christian like being an adult like anything requires a lot of accountability and responsibility you can't just be something without all that. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I've heard, and maybe I've even said to folks, is like one man's patriot is another man's terrorist, and depending on which side of it you're on. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And that that's when you exactly. when you when you really put yourself in another human being's shoes. Sometimes you go, man, I actually relate with where what their plight is, and then mm-hmm. when their plight uh, doesn't align with your colors. Mm-hmm. Then there, then you start to question that. You know, mm-hmm. I really, I've, I've found myself in that kind of predicament many times, where I, I say the words, "Look, I love this country," but very often, I the things I say probably won't sound like it, but they actually, but they actually come from a place of love because I think we can be better than we are, mm-hmm. and even better than we've been. Yeah, and I mean, like that, the right wing radio host guy I was talking to in Clint, Texas, he said. He was talking about patriotism, and I said, well, do you think that these left-wing liberals that are out here yelling about the kids being held in in detention, do you think what they're doing is anti-patriotic, that it's un-American? And he paused, and I knew he wanted to say yes. Mm. And he goes, and then I I interrupted him, and I said, because dissent is patriotic. Mm. And he said... You're right. Yeah. I, I agree that they cool have the right to value. And I said, and you have the right to disagree with it. That's fine. But we don't have to throw things at each other and yell and scream. But to to be a patriot, it's 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 more than just saying, okay, do whatever you want. I mean, you know, and that's the whole thing about America was you always have to question the government. I don't care who's in charge. Mm-hmm. It's patriotic to question the government and ask why things are done. And when we look at the Border Patrol in general, the Border Patrol is just 
I don't know that it ever had a way because the Border Patrol was literally born out of racism. It was brought to be because of the Chinese immigrants that mm-hmm. were here that they wanted mm-hmm. to get rid of in 1924. Mm-hmm. But certainly after 9-11, they really, really just went off the tracks with these anti-immigrant hate groups that that's, mm-hmm. that that. When you look at who started these anti-immigrant hate groups, they're all actually these old-school eugenicists, mm. which is, yeah. you know, that's just a scientific way to be racist, you know, <laughs> population control and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at who's behind it, but at the same time, and I understand I'm not a Latina, so it's it's not as personal. I And when, a, and when somebody who's Latino and they have personal contact with this and it's painful you have to let them have their pain you have to listen to their pain and and at the same time you have to understand it's so hard to do you have to understand that many of these agents do not understand how they've been manipulated and do not understand uh what they're you know that that this was planned and they've been tricked and not to say that a lot of the agents aren't outright racist some are a lot are but and and i don't think you can be part of that organization like i couldn't be without tending to that way but i don't think it's this this either or you're either a racist or you're not you know right no do you hear the criticism well most of the border patrol agents you know, have Spanish last names. Most of them, you know, their par- their parents and grandparents came the right way, and they're Latino immigrants themselves. I hear that all the time. So, what do I you? I mean, what is your answer? Because it's, a, I'm sure, there's like a culturally complicated answer that you know, here in Louisiana, we don't because we don't have we have a small little border patrol office in Lake Charles. That's not. I mean, well, Jim, they're not. So there's or customs. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Only in your port, yeah, I would right, imagine. right. We yeah. have a little customs office in the port. But um, so generally, what people have to understand, and like half my class was Latino, of and course. I remember when I was in class, and the law instructor was like, "You'll just know when they're here." They use the term illegally, uh, right? And I said, "What do you mean you'll just know?" <laughs> and he said, "You just know." And I said. Huh. I don't understand. And the guys are laughing at me and I turn and I look around and I go, how do I know that he's not here illegally? Yeah. And they're like, what? And they get all offended. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'm a white girl from Alabama. I don't <laughs> right. know. Yeah. What's the marker? Yeah. You know? And, 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 and so the deal with the Latino agents is that not every Latino obviously is connected to their heritage. That's one. Right. Um, and then a lot of them come from border communities. Right. So the Border Patrol heavily recruits down here in the border right. communities, especially in the really, really small towns. Yeah. And what you find is that the agents will tell you, yeah, I remember growing up, every time I went to school, agents would stop me and ask my citizenship, and mm-hmm. they were jerks, and I hated them, and blah, blah, blah. But what I knew was that as a young Latino growing up in a Podunk town on the border with no opportunities. That yeah, the this was a good job. Pretty good. Yep. And well, they it's... had health insurance. And the agents, the one thing I can say, even though they messed with me as a kid, nobody messed with them. And they yeah. always had a nice house. They had the God. nice car. They had the girlfriends. You just described gang culture. 
It is. That I mean, is that's exactly literally what, what that is. sounds like. Well, these exactly are the same people who are it's, deciding to staff the ice prisons in Louisiana because it's, it's a good yeah. job. Oh, man. It's psychologically, it's psychologically yeah. the same thing. And, and, and so, but then um, there's uh, on Twitter, and I can't remember, she told me what her real name is, but I can't remember because she's a writer, a young black writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her Twitter handle is uh, at caffeinated living. Uh, so if you I decide think I to follow, follow her, yeah, please let her. <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> but she, she broke it down into uh, a very succinct argument that especially many youngsters understand is that when you see somebody like a Ben Carson and, mm. you know, in an administration that yeah. doesn't seem to care for black people when you see agents latino agents in the border patrol that doesn't seem to care about hispanics or other latinos what those people are doing is they're seeking privilege they're not seeking equality right Ah, it's like you say that to people they go oh because we all at some point maybe have done that yeah yeah and i think that brings true yeah, that does. Hadn't thought of it that way before, but that's mm-hmm. that's definitely accurate. You can see that. So I don't think it's as much uh, a, a characteristic of the Border Patrol that they're, half of them are Latino. It's more a characteristic of their personality. Hmm. I see. Okay. I mean, you can, was, I guess yeah, you can look back through, I mean... I guess even like certain like even wartime where you see some of the some similar things like that, right? Where you'll see like a, a particular I don't know how I don't know really not right way to say that, but like in a conflict you'll see people from maybe the other side come over to the uh the aggressor's side and sort of form their own little unit within that mm-hmm. apparatus, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then mm-hmm. it becomes like, hey, I'm on the winning side now. Right. I'm on the mm-hmm. right side and it's a clout thing. It, it, it makes yeah. you mm-hmm. feel accepted and like, yeah, I know I'm not I'm not one of you, but because I'm wearing your uniform, you accept me since I'm on your side. It's not it isn't even it's not real acceptance. Right. If that makes any sense. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, you're wearing the colors, you're wrapped in it. Now, you do hear that kind of language with, like, some military groups, you know, like Marines. I know my father used to say that, you know, uh, you didn't see color in the Marine Corps is what he would always say. He said, Marines are Marines. They're not, you know, that, yeah. that's the thinking anyway that, that he would uh, put out there, you know. And I wonder mm-hmm. if the Border Patrol, does it have an, an element like that? It's like, you know, it doesn't sound like it. With well, women, they have that I mean, idea that they're all green and they all bleed green is what they say. But okay. um, but when you get into it as an actual agent, there are all these different cliques where the Latino agents feel that they're not getting promoted enough, and uh, only okay. the white That's agents what I wondered. are promoted. Yeah. So there are all these cliques, just as there is in the military. Mm-hmm. And so it just depends on how the leadership wants to use it to their advantage. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I think my big takeaway from everything we talked about is that it, it may be a slow change, but I think for me, the change happens just like what you described is by one, having conversations with people and not mm-hmm. coming in hot. 
You know, I mean, I I do believe standing up for people who are downtrodden. Sometimes you do have to go stand on a line and take and put your skin in the game, you know, and sweat and bleed. Sometimes you do. But I think it's worth the effort to have dialogue first and really, truly try to to bring somebody in through. And that takes a lot of energy and efforts. It can be exhausting, too. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth the effort to do that that first and continue to have those types of conversations, especially with people that I don't agree with. That's something that I am guilty of is being exhausted by a negative interaction and just going, just forget it. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. And then sort of clustering up with like-minded folks. And I have to resist that because if I continually have conversations with like-minded people, I'm not really getting in front of the people that really need to change the most, you know? I think it's human nature and it's animal nature. You know, you go to where your comfort is and if it's easier that way, then that's where you're going to go. That's why we have stereotypes. I mean, if you realize that we are basically animals, a stereotype that says that lions are dangerous, they will eat you, well, that kind of benefits you. And so I think that we still have, in some ways, some of those, those especially when we start seeing our uh, basic needs not being met, whether we're talking about food and shelter and, and uh, safety, then, then you start seeing a lot of this hate and lashing out and stuff. And yeah. then just, I, I do agree, obviously, that we have never dealt with our racism and what we have done as a country. We've just tried to gloss over it. Yeah, Certainly growing up as a girl in Alabama, the, the only education I have regarding slavery was like, yeah, we had slaves. Right. And then they were, well, sure. I talked about this online the other day. I mean, this is maybe a silly thing to throw in here, but, you know, just what we're not taught when we're young or what we've tried to cover up in in these terrible atrocities. I was watching HBO's new uh, Watchmen series. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching the first episode and, and. that show, if you know anything about it, or the comic books, it's sort of like alternative American history where they've tweaked in the books. They tweak America's history just a little bit to create this really different timeline that we had maybe followed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when the show came out, this new show, they opened up with this event in 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma. Yeah, the- I didn't know about this. And so I'm watching this, uh, the Black Wall Street Massacre. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching mm-hmm. them do this Black Wall Street Massacre. And I we looked over at my wife and I go, I said, oh, this is like the books. They're doing these little alternative American facts and in my mind this was just something they crafted for the show to set the stage so i go online the next morning kind of digging around and i was like what in the world this is real this is a real thing and i was like how in my whole how's how does this not get transmitted to you as an american citizen that this is a part of your history this bad no mistake that is by design it is by design (laughs) and it's it it bothers me and and you know it bothers me as as a 45 year old man that I guess we only get sort of taught the good parts and we sort of gloss over these, the blood, you know, I mean, we're sort of drenched in blood in a lot of ways and they don't, we don't get taught that stuff. And it's that way on, on the border too. I mean, it's not like they taught us that in the border patrol, how the border patrol came about. And then when you read the history of enforcement on the border, um, and you see like in the 30s and 40s when people would come across to work in the fields and then mm-hmm. go back and see, that, that there was also a lot of lynchings going yes. on of Mexican people yes. so and then and just a lot of uh, killings and murders and, and then if 
think there was a time and I don't know the exact dates but there was a time when there was like I don't know a measles outbreak or some sort of outbreak and then and of course so they blamed it on the field workers mm-hmm. and so then they made them all shave their heads before they could come in to work in the fields and they made them strip down naked and doused them with chemicals and all this other stuff and i mean just reminiscent it makes me think of uh, reminiscent of the concentration how people mm-hmm. treated in the concentration camps in in germany and um it you know and then obviously the lynching that that happened on the southern border that was also part of slavery so and the the common denominator in all that i think it's like white supremacy they just cannot stop they just they're always looking for a little way in and it just is like and i know i you know i had some young hispanic man in kentucky came up to me and he said how do i talk to what my white loved ones without them thinking I'm saying that they're racist. And I said, yeah, white people get really, like... Fragile about that. Fragile about that. Right, it's true. Like, well, I'm not a racist. Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and I said, so you're going to have that. And and if you love that person, and you shouldn't have to, but you're just going to have to, you're going to have to be gentle about that. And... um, you know, just like you want them to be gentle about how you feel about being, you know, how your culture has been treated. And um, it's it's hard because I, I can hear Latino friends right now saying, well, I don't have anything to be gentle about. It's true. Mm-hmm. But I just I just ask that we all try to be kind and quiet with each other and 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 walk in each other's shoes and listen to each other before we speak and before, you know, we lash out and that that young man just oh it was just heartbreaking he was sobbing Hmm. uncontrollably afterwards and hugged me like three times and was just like i've never heard a white woman talk like that you know and i wasn't all like white people are terrible right right and it doesn't sound like you're saying that right it's, it's it's I'm not going to lie to you. They're going to think you're calling them a racist. It's not going to be fun. Yeah. You know? That's but always. If you, them, you want them in your life and you feel that you need to broach this conversation to continue a relationship, then mm-hmm. you, you need to find a way. And you need to let them know that whatever it is that they're doing is hurting you and why it's hurting you. Uh, you know, maybe they're making jokes and they just, you know, like run for the border or something. And, and you need to explain why that's offensive. And hopefully they love you enough to see that. But try and come in if it starts to devolve into anger and shouting the back away from it and you know so yeah it's complicated but i think it's worth it i think that this is um what we're meant to do so and the joy that i get from it in going into those dark places and coming out a little bit with a little bit more understanding and a little bit of forgiveness and is um is worth everything it truly is it sounds like it's world healing work is what it sounds like it really does i mean it sounds like sometimes you know you hear people say they go that's god's work yeah, it sounds like it sounds like that to me like mm-hmm. it really does when you frame it that way the way you just said that it's it's something that must be done because it is just right Mm -hmm. and i think you know when we talked about patriotism what we were talking about before you look at the you know it feels like to a lot of people who 
believe that just wearing the hat and you know draping the flag around them that that's patriotism and when you say well what about slavery they take it as such a an insult Mm. and it's like no it's not an insult we're trying to say that yeah we have these ideals we have ideals to be fair and all men are created equal and 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 this is what we espouse and you know what we've espoused it but we've not really got up to it yeah so let's instead of trying to just cover it up cover up the stinking pile of poo it's still stinky and Mm. i would like to deal with a pile of poo instead of yeah actually flush it yeah Yeah, actually flush it and let's just let's deal with it not everybody obviously is going to come to that same understanding but i think the majority of people you know i i think the majority of americans the majority of people in the world are neither all the way left all the way right i think all of us are somewhere in the middle yeah no it's true it's true I, I, I find that within myself, if I'm honest. I mean, the other day, um, someone used the term liberal in speaking about me. And I uh, I was actually, I, I don't use that word about myself. I, I don't mm-hmm. think of myself in those terms. You yeah. know what I mean? And so, but I, I felt a little bit, I'm not going to lie, like I honestly, <laughs> I kind of felt a little like a gut punch. I was like, what? Like I was actually surprised as when liberal Mm -hmm. and then i started like kind of analyzing very quickly like so what does that mean from this person's perspective like where am i at on this spectrum because i find i do have thoughts that are and feelings about certain things that would probably fall in a conservative camp other Mm -hmm. things maybe are a little more liberal and some things i'm not so sure but then i started thinking i said but they're only framing me as a liberal through a certain set of markers just these things and these are the things that they care about and you know i realized for in that conversation that i have different markers for me and i I realized most of the conversations i'm having are like that they're based like uh, for instance like our president their support of that person is based on a set of let's say five markers Mm-hmm. But when I look at the my lack of support, I have five markers that don't have any they're not they don't look like theirs at all. Mm-hmm. And so we're just basing our support or lack thereof on completely different things that matter to us yeah. because the things that matter to them just exactly. do not matter to me. I'm like I don't base I'm not I'm not in this these aren't my switches. I don't yeah. even think Trump is a Republican. I don't even think he's a conservative. No, I, I actually no, he's just don't. He's an authoritarian kleptocrat. He's authoritarian. He's an <laughs> egomaniacal, you know, whatever narcissist. And he will be on whatever side is benefiting him at any time. But he has taken up the moniker and the label of the Republican right. Party. And unfortunately, the Republican Party has not fought back enough on that. Um, so that would be kind of cool if we could see them try and take their party back but well, they tried before that election and it didn't work out for them very well and now they're falling in line yeah it is interesting how a figure like that can do that like you said it's wrapping yourself in a brand i mean it's just branding mm-hmm. you know branding. and calling yourself something and then you know the party kind of doesn't really have a choice i mean they do have a choice but they kind of go well if we want to want to keep you know yeah. our status quo we kind of have to go along with this and uh it's just bully. Right. it's just bullying really I mean, it's very strange you know loopholes in whether it's the government or the system he's very good at that you know like so many things that he's violated and and done are not necessarily illegal they're just contrary to our norms yeah 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 and i i don't know i've searched my thoughts on this all the time 
because it is funny when he said, and to me, it's it, you know, cause the late night comedians poke fun at what he says every night because there's every yeah. day there's some ridiculous thing. Like I think yesterday, he's not so good with a speech. Yeah, yeah. yeah so <laughs> yesterday, I think it was uh, we're going to build the wall between New Mexico in and Colorado. Colorado, and I go, that's ridiculous. And in my mm-hmm. mind, I go, any any American knows that that's. And I and I even give him the benefit of the doubt and go. Even he knows this. He knows this, and yeah. I've come to believe that it's just like a um, a static screen. It's like how much bullshit can I just throw out there and just say mm-hmm. whatever haphazardly and just create so many wrecks that you just can't even focus on one thing and see what's going on anymore. And I just yeah. get my way, yeah. kind of dancing between the raindrops of all of this crap that yeah. I'm slinging out there. And yeah. I, I I just don't know that I'm a hundred percent buying that that isn't intentional or at least some part of the of why it's like that it's just like i'm just going to feed stuff that's volatile triggering Mm -hmm. people constantly Mm -hmm. and the narcissistic element just feeds on that you know what he reminds me of uh and i recognized him right away and if if you've ever had to deal with a con man then you recognize it too is he he reminds me of um in a lot of ways of my alcoholic mother all the mm. manipulation and the lying and the and everything is centered around them so i think a lot of people if you grew up with an alcoholic uh parent um there's there's uh books written on uh the norms of alcoholic families and how everybody has to keep the secret and everybody has to prop the alcoholic mm. up mm. and yeah. keep things and he reminds me exactly that and then and Alcoholics, a lot of times, they have, they're not necessarily narcissistic, but they can have narcissistic traits in our view. And I think that um, people who've dealt with con men and stuff, they knew exactly what he was from, from yeah. the get go. Um, but they're really good at manipulating people and, and, and having people think that there's something else and people want to believe it it's comfortable to believe it i think a lot of times mm, I, I never thought of it that way but that's true i mean yeah. it's like it's like don't talk about it mm-hmm. don't upset that person and so you just sort of like a family secret mm-hmm. that everybody already knows but you just don't it, it's a weird walking thing walking on eggshells yeah walking on eggshells and and it's yeah. uh it's and that's how he is as a president i mean he really is that's how it feels in this entire country like we're all walking on eggshells yeah yeah well no it's true i feel it is like an anxiety a background noise and i'm happy i know this episode's fishing for goodies fishbowl sponsor is brimstone museum and henning cultural center in sulfur louisiana i don't know what you look for when you travel but one of the things i look for when i'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city i'm traveling to I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. 
On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. So I'm going to move us into the fishbowl section of our show, which I think I talked to you about a little bit through our chat. And this is the part of the show called Fish for Goodies, where we give the interview up to the fishbowl. Okay. <laughs> so what right. I'm going to do, since you're not actually here with us, I'm just going to draw the questions out and okay. then read them, and then we'll just discuss them. I'm okay. a, I don't ra- rarely get to dig my hand in here. Usually the guest does, so this is kind of always fun. I always try to go well, deep. I have to come to Louisiana. I love Louisiana food. So. Oh, we, we love it here. We have great food here. That's, that's one of the oh, big yeah. draws. I miss it. Do you? Do you get to travel here? Have you been here several many times? Or I, I, I haven't, but I miss you know being in Mobile and stuff. And so I learned all about Louisiana food, and I love Louisiana food, and I cook Louisiana food every chance I get. I use Tony. Oh, uh, Tony Shasheries. Yeah. yeah, I love it. <laughs> That's a Louisiana staple, man. Everywhere you go, somebody somebody's using that. I'm amazed at the yeah. reach of that brand. It's out here, but everybody out here, of course, calls it Chicheries. Chicheries. My sister had a boyfriend when we were kids, and he was from Seattle. And I think he was from Seattle. Anyway, he came down here, and he was, oh, y'all have the Tony's Chicheries. And he said that, and I was like, yeah. well, what's he talking yeah. about? And I realized it was Tony Sacheries. Yeah. Well, that's a hard one to say, though. I think they even have a TV commercial where it's like a little joke, where it's like showing people trying oh, to say yeah. it from different places. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is interesting, and nobody's asked this question before. So the first question from the fishbowl says, which words or phrases do you most overuse? Mm. Does Jen Bud have any catchphrases? Well, my wife would say that I talk Southern sometimes because I say, you want, I should. (laughs) (laughs) You want, I should? But I don't have a heavy Southern accent unless I get around people like y'all. But I do say y'all a lot, but... (laughs) Um, I think you know I'll say like a lot and I'll say so a lot before I start talking and stuff. Yeah. But have you ever been? Have you ever had anything that you said in an interview? Because you've been interviewed quite a bit in in the recent you know years. Uh, has there ever been anything taken out of context where you were like, oh my gosh, that is not not my uh, point that I was trying to make, or they've just selected something. No, not really. Oh, Everybody's good. been pretty fair. Good. I haven't really had, you know, anything. I, I did put out a tweet this morning that some people got upset about. But you what know. did it say? Can you tell us? <laughs> I was t- commenting on how uh, Zuckerberg, if 
appears to me to be robotic. <laughs> and a lot of people said that he apparently is on the autism spectrum, and I had no idea. Hmm. And I don't have any connection with autism or any knowledge of autism. So they, at first, there were a lot of jokes going around, and then people said, that he's on the spectrum or they think he's on the spectrum. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean any offense, but you know, it's already out there. So I apologized for that. But, well, can yeah. I tell you something really strange about Facebook mm. since you brought it up? I, uh, I've never had this happen before. And I always see people go, oh, I've been blocked on Facebook. You know, I can't post anything or I can't share anything. And that's never happened to me. And I always look at these people and I go, well, I go look at what they post. And I'm like, it's kind of toeing the line of something maybe offensive or racist or just kind of bigoted. And I go, well, I, got, I guess I can see where it broke some rules. But yesterday... I was blocked. You got put in Facebook jail? Facebook jail. And I was like, this, and first I thought something's wrong with my phone. And so I uninstalled it, reinstalled it. I'm doing all the normal stuff. And then I started noticing the same thing on all my computers. And I was like, this is very odd. And so I started analyzing my my habits. Have I done something? What have I posted? Uh-huh. Couldn't find a doggone thing that was any different than you anything didn't get I a did. Notification did about what put you in Facebook? No, I, I did. Re, did reply and send them a message uh-huh. saying, "Hey, look, if you review my activity, nothing's changed." But I couldn't help but have this sinking suspicion. Like the only thing that has changed was that I was talking to new people through the messenger app that I hadn't talked to before, and so I was uh-huh. like, "Well, is that?" like a marker for Facebook now? Do they put people in these little timeout zones whenever, you know, there's something that like that happening? I don't know. I, I know that sometimes like uh, Southern Borders, Twitter, they sometimes get put in timeout and it's because uh, people who don't agree with their pro-immigrant stance will, report. will find something uh. and, and then report. And so, you know, yeah. I mean, you always run that risk, I guess. Yeah, um, I that's possible. Say, but yeah, if I someone reports they... your content on Facebook, you get a notification. Oh, well, I did send, I did what click whatever reported. the thing was that you click, and I filled out the little thing and showed them, and they, I just gave them my report on, mm-hmm. you know, my, my activity and, uh, why I think I shouldn't be blocked. Basically, it was like my little pitch, sales pitch, and then <laughs> within 30 minutes, it was back. Wow. It was very strange. strange. I've never went through that before, though, so I didn't know what it even looked like. Hmm. Have you ever been through that? You ever been put in Facebook jail? No, not yet. But, I mean, I imagine at some point if I was louder, maybe it would. You know, people ask me all the time, (laughs) do you ever get, like, Border Patrol uh, attacking you and stuff? And I... I, I get mostly people, the big thing, of course, is they comment on my weight because I'm overweight and say that I could never have been an agent. And it's like, okay, that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> you know? right, yeah, all of us 20 uh, years ago. Right. I'm 48 now, so, you know, and it's like, and I, I left the patrol in 2001, so. Yeah. Um, but, and, um, so they just try and be mean and hateful. I have had one agent's wife tell me I needed to shut my mouth or they'd shut it for me. Really? Uh, so an actual like kind of threat. threat. Yeah. And then another guy had written to me and told me that because he could tell I was gay that I was the one that probably raped migrants and stuff. And wow. So people what? are very hateful sometimes, yeah. but for the most part, uh, the agents and stuff just kind of leave me alone. I've not had any I've yeah. not had any issues. 
that might change at some point. But. Yeah. Well, and sometimes people will leave you alone if what you're saying is actually true and can be proven. They're like, you know what? It's better. Mm-hmm. We just don't kind of let that let that do its thing, because if we draw attention to ourselves, it's just going to make it even even more of a place to look. Yeah. Right. If you back up the behavior. Right. I mean, right. if you share this person's tweet or even if you're arguing against them, you're still sharing their tweet. You're still sharing their stuff. So, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's go to question number two. That was pretty good. I like how they end up in places and that yeah. the question doesn't ask. Let's see what we got here. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. What is your motto? <sighs> I do have a motto now that you asked me that. Okay, good. Um, drawing a blank now that you asked me that. Do you have a motto? Do I have a motto? You know, I think I do, but I think I got it from a movie. It's be nice <laughs> until it's time not to be nice. Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse. Hell yeah. Well, there you go. You know, and I'll I'll lean more on the nice side. I think I, I try to be nice on the front end of everything. I just, even if it's just a smile, and sometimes even if I don't want to, I mean, and even sometimes to my detriment, I will try my best to be kind and nice. But I do feel like there's a threshold where it's like, like I was saying, sometimes you have to go stand on that line and put your blood and sweat in it. And so I feel like I try to get gauge when that time is but i don't greet everything with a ball that fists i know what my motto is oh, good. it's uh and i do always say it um and actually it's funny that i forgot it because i just tweeted about it is that um you have to meet people where they are Ooh, I like and, that, yeah yeah this guy who's kind of my mentor at uh uh southern borders um and i gave him my badge and my gun belt and everything and handed it over to him for thanks and stuff but um it's yeah you just you have to meet people where they are and not all people are able to get to where you would hope they would be um but that's okay so you meet people where they are i like that Mm -hmm. what about you laura oh oh (laughs) Uh, um lash pala patat what's that don't drop the potato. To don't drop the potato. What does that and mean? Don't give Spanish, up. In Spanish, it would be no te rindas. Don't so, give up. Don't give up. I like that there too. You go. Yeah, I, I'd say there's a few mottos that have been sticky for me and they all a lot of them do come from pop culture but I, I have this poster in my office from this old 80s show called uh, Megaforce and their patch it's actually on my backpack it says deeds not words and I always mm-hmm. loved that uh, I was like hey that's simple deeds not words yep. since we're talking about mottos I did not stage that but I do have another question that I wrote down and it has to do with mottos and it was uh, the Border Patrol's motto which was honor first Right. What? Yeah. yeah. I wrote that down because <laughs> I, I, I didn't I didn't know that wow. either. And I wondered hmm. when I wrote this down, I thought, I wonder what Jen yeah. thinks oh, I'm of always, that. Like, when I write, I'm like, is this honor first? I don't think so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. So did you know okay. that motto going into the Border Patrol or did you learn sure, it after you became like... an agent? And then. Well, I, no, I learned it, you know. Probably the, the first academy, day of I training. Learned. Yeah. What's the that sales was, pitch behind that motto? I mean, like, hey, honor first. Is it like Semper Fidelis for the Marines? Like, yeah, yeah, that's how they see themselves is that they're honorable and stuff. But my <laughs> point to them is it's not honorable to put children in cages. It's not honorable to right. put asylum seekers in indefinite detention. And they know this. And yeah. it's, it's not honorable to cover up their rape culture and stuff like that. I wish they did put honor first. I really do. Um, 
but they don't. And I'm, that's my push is I want them to put honor first, like they say. I love that. Hmm. It's going to be your motto. Try to do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. give it a, give yeah. it a really a, an honest attempt, an honorable attempt at yeah. honor first. Yeah. Yeah. I like that question. Let's see what else is in here. What's Can I read? Yeah. All right. Here we go. All right, Jen. What is the nicest thing a stranger has ever done for you? <sighs> the nicest thing that a stranger has ever done for me is... I mean, the easy out would say, like, somebody bought me a free meal after I spoke one time, and I didn't know who it was, but that yeah. was kind of... Can I reframe that a little bit, that question, yeah. and bring it more home? Have you has has a has in your job when you were with the border patrol? Did a migrant ever do anything nice to you, nice for you? Someone that maybe you assisted or helped? They're not always in a, a position, I would say, to do that. But just the fact that they would tell me a lot of times that I was a, a really good person. Yeah, uh, I remember one time I caught this. Uh, a large group on down in Takati, but up on the mountain, and I was on the side of a cliff, and a helicopter was flying out there, and it was just causing all this brush, and and it was a large group, and I was by myself, which is usually how we patrol. But I had learned in the academy any decent sized man could kick my butt, so I always tried to be very careful, um, you know, especially in the dark and stuff. And uh, I was grabbing this one guy to come out, and and he was not listening to me he was younger and he was being rude and this older gentleman stood up and he was like probably in his 60s and he said you need to do what she says and be polite and Mm. he he helped me in the situation being on the side of the the cliff because i could have easily gone over the cliff and i got it was about a probably a group of 30 or 40 and and the young man said something to me in spanish and i think he probably said something rude i couldn't understand what he had said and the old man just dressed him down you know she is a polite person she's being nice she's you know because you you have to understand that uh their experience with law enforcement is much different than ours and he's like she's not beating us she's not yelling Uh, at us or cursing and the young man apologized and stuff and so i mean it could have been a very dangerous situation and i had no reason to be rude to them or no cause to to do that and he was just being a little punk kid but this uh, older gentleman just uh helped me and i needed that so i love what you just said right there i don't know i just respect that so much you know you were in a position of authority mm-hmm. but what you just said was i had no reason to be aggressive or to be rude and i don't yeah. i don't always experience that with law enforcement but when i do experience it i always appreciate it because you know they are in a position of authority and power mm-hmm. and i i wish i could say that i haven't been on the other end of that where that power has maybe been abused a little bit and it left a mm-hmm. really it leaves a sting on you it leaves like this stain to where the next time you encounter someone in uniform where you just assume they're going to abuse that power and right. You know, what you said, if that's 100% true, that's amazing. It's awesome because that's what I always hope for is mm-hmm. exactly what you said is go, hey, I, I do have authority and I do have power, but I'm not going to – I'm coming at you with my hands open. I'm coming at you with kindness and with respect. You mm-hmm. know, it's not uh, just aggression. 
You know, when I first started in being the only female at Campo, and it's um, a very well-known station in the Border Patrol because it's very rigorous and, and physically demanding, and I would follow what my some of my instructors or my training agents did, and they would come up and they would, you know, sit down, shut up, let me run, just yell hmm. and this and that and intimidate. Yeah. And I found that when, and because we always patrolled alone, I found that, um, and we hiked alone, I found that being as small as I was, and they used to call me little white girl in Spanish was mm. what they called me because I was so thin back then. And um, But they, um, what I found is that I had less confrontation and less problems when I came up and said, is everybody okay? Does anybody need water? Is anybody mm. hurt? And that's the first thing out of my mouth. God, and, like then and, and it puts them off guard. Whereas they're expecting you to be confrontational, they're expecting to run, they're expecting to have problems. But when you do something like that, they're like, oh no, I'm good, I'm okay, and you know. So for the most part, that's actually how I, and, you know, if I had to, then I had to, but you know. Yeah, it's that first do no harm mentality. That's actually really right. beautiful, I like that. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you, you said this a few times today since we've been talking, and I guess I, I'm trying to, my imagination kicks in every time you say it. I'm trying to put myself in these situations you're in, and I didn't realize that you patrolled, that you guys patrolled alone. Alone. Yeah, mm-hmm. that surprises Sometimes on the me. highways, you might see two people on a highway, um, but no, you patrol alone. So <laughs> when I was young, you know, trying to prove myself, I used to, the agents would go hiking in a, you know, like 110 degree weather after a group on a really long mountain trail and up these mountains and boulders. And eventually they they give up and I'd always go in behind them and gut it out and prove that I could <laughs> do what they didn't do yeah. and uh, yeah but no you you're all alone so yeah. well i have a question and this is maybe just maybe i don't know often left field but was there anything in that time i mean i know you've painted an honest picture i have a lot to think about too and i hope the people listening search their hearts and their minds and their opinions and their perspectives after listening to everything we talked about but during that time uh, did you ever experience anything that you would consider beautiful? Um, it, you know, any time that I could help somebody, uh, and that it does include those who had succumbed to the environment out there, because yeah. it snows in Campo and it gets really hot in Campo too, so we see both sides. But um, any time you could do that. It was um, very touching. Um, I remember I helped one young 12-year-old girl who had ended up getting lost out there. And she was out there for three days, but she was smart enough she could hear the highway. Mm -hmm. And she kept going towards the highway. And along the way, she would find, you know, bottles of water that groups before her had left. And somehow she survived. And... um, that felt good or any time where you know somebody had an accident or something and you could help save their lives and or you know you track them through the snow and got to them right before they they passed um, yeah from hypothermia and things like that um so you know there are opportunity people say some people have said you just hate the border patrol like i said i think in the beginning of this podcast but it's like no i don't and, and it's very confusing at times for me because I do have moments where I was very proud to have that uniform on. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments where obviously I didn't. Um, yeah. But 
it it's um it's very emotional it's not just it, it's not just you know they suck i hate them and they're right. terrible mm-hmm. none right. of that right. none of that even though i i had a really uh, abusive and rough time there it's not like that at all yeah no, and that's why I wanted to ask you that, because I know sometimes within these time frames in our life, you know, whether it's four years, five years, a decade, you can look in there and go, oh, this this was the worst decade of my life or that five years was terrible or like me, I'm divorced. And so there's when I just I can get caught if I really sit and think about, oh, there's so much. This was bad and that was bad and this was bad. That is honestly not the truth. It's only a part of the truth because within those things, there were still moments of joy and happiness and laughter and love and light. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy in retrospect to just go paint it with one brush. And so I try to be I try not to fall into that frame of mind. That's why I wanted to ask you that, because I know there had to be moments of that, just like what you described, human compassion. And there's actually one really good story that I have that kind of encompasses all that emotion into one night. So I had. I was a senior agent already, and I had gotten back from prosecutions detail like six months down at Sector, and and I come back to Campo, and it was my first night out, and they put me in Tecate, and I was up on one of the mountains looking down into Mexico, and all the like the Tecate beer sign, and I was mm-hmm. just waiting for sensors to go off and stuff to to happen, and and a sensor went off. And the scope truck said, okay, I got one person walking north in the gully. And I said, all right. So I jump in my truck, whisk down the mountain and go there. And I'm just walking through the gully. And he's like, okay, he's right to your left. And I'm like, okay. And I flash my light to the left. And there's this Mexican adult male. And he's he looks kind of... Like, he's wearing a suit that doesn't fit him and stuff, which is odd. So he's not like the normal crosser and mm. stuff. And he's kind of crouched down. And then all of a sudden he goes to jump up. And I go, ah, 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 like that. And he goes back down. <laughs> and then I pull my cuffs out. And I say, because believe it or not, we didn't normally cuff a lot of people back then. Most of the migrants are very nice. And the last thing I want to do is tussle with a Border Patrol agent. So, But I cuffed him. Plus, I'm right close to the fence and everything. So... I cuffed him and I'm walking with him and I've got, you know, my hands on his arm and I'm walking with him back to my truck and he starts jumping at me from the side, kind of like, you know, like he's trying to bite my neck or something like that. <laughs> wow. Okay. And all of a sudden I hear over my radio in my earpiece, I hear, you know, I don't remember what the tin code was for an agent getting, you know, beat up or something like that, but something like that. And then he's like, he's trying to hurt but he's yelling my last name mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden this truck from another agent comes out of nowhere and this agent comes running through and flies through the air and before I can even say anything and I'm like stop 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 and he's on top of this guy and is just like punching the hell out of him in his face and stuff and I'm like stop 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 and I finally get the agent off of him and, and stuff and he's like what he was beating you up and stuff and he didn't hurt the guy too bad so it wasn't that big of a deal but I, I said and the guy's laughing actually and I said he's not hurting me he's trying to kiss me oh and he was a little had a little mental issues and (laughs) and and we encounter that actually a lot out there in the middle of nowhere people don't think about that yeah 
and and um, so he had decided that he was attracted to me, and so he kept calling me instead of Agent Bud. He would call me Agente Bud, and he would say, <laughs> say you know, Agente Bud, as mi novia, she, she's my girlfriend. Oh my gosh! And he was telling the other agents this, and and then. The guy's like, is she okay over the radio? The scope's and I'm like, I'm fine, fine, all okay. And then the other guy's like, he thinks he's, and I'm like, stop it, stop saying this over the radio, you know? And yeah, yeah. So I ended up putting him in his truck, and 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 it's just kind of. I remember I got in my truck, and I'm going back to the port to I don't know, go to the restroom or go get lunch or something, and and um, and I'm driving right along the fence, right back to the port, and um. I'm just like laughing to myself and I go, gosh, every time I feel like I hate these people, I find out how much I love them and I'm just laughing and it was just so funny and it was, uh-huh. it, and luckily he wasn't hurt and he laughed it off and this and that and so, and it was just a good story and then I'm not kidding you, within that second, something hits my truck, the, the hood <sighs> of my truck. Somebody on the other side of the fence threw a human head what? On my truck, a human head. A head? Yeah, and it had a little bit of hair and skin still attached. <gasps> like a like a migrant who had died. What? No, I don't, probably a cartel killer cartel or something killer. like oh that. My so God. yeah, but, God. and then and I'm like, and I stop on the brakes and I start, I go, God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I hate these mother. You know, and I'm just yeah. like. I was so mad, and I was just like, and they ran out and got the head, apparently, so I couldn't do anything about it and report it or anything, but it's like, before I knew it, they were gone, but it's just like in the span of a few minutes, I'm like, all this stuff, and I forgot how great the people are out here, and then the next minute, I'm cursing and screaming, and yeah. God, isn't that life, though, right? I mean, like, that's a good old, I'm glad you told that story, because it's like, yeah, it's, you can have this elation, and this this laugh, and this joy, or fun, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's a a human head, head you know, coming at you, landing on your truck. Like that extreme in most people's lives. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> it's how, it's how That's the border was. You know? Man, that is a wild story. That's how the border was. Yeah, I mean, something. I would. You just nailed it. I mean, like, said so we don't. I wouldn't. You don't think about mental illness. We talk about mental illness and mental health a lot on this show. And well, we go, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a part any of life. population is going to have disability. <laughs> That's is right. Have, you know, it's um, easy to forget. Yeah. You know? I, I, ran into this one guy he was way far north actually and running in a field but he was wearing like these old school kind of track shorts and i'm like what are you doing and he just kept running back and forth and i'm just standing there watching him run back and forth i'm like what are you doing but he said i'm training for the olympics and he was serious but he had crossed the border without inspection so yeah i had to trust him but yeah Yeah, there are people i guess what was happening at that time for people who were iwi who entered without inspection? Like, what were they? So that was were they, like, what was happening? Twenty-five was criminal. That was when it was an administrative civil charge. Okay. So I've never put anybody in jail for okay. for Erie. Yeah. Okay. So what? No, what would happen to them? You would you would criminals. detain them, and then what? Like, if they chose, which the majority of them did back then, they chose a voluntary return, or they would we just cross back over. Yeah. A VR. We mm-hmm. would just send them back to Mexico, and they would be back 
you know, the next day or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, try again later and not get caught that yeah. time. Yeah. Well, there... I mean, I remember one night in Takati, we kept having this one group hit the same sensor, and it was like three nights in a row. On the fourth night, I was sitting up in a tree waiting on them because they came at the same time every night. Mm-hmm. And I, and they came again, and I jumped down, and I yelled, Chupacabra, you know, which is, you know. Oh. And um, I think you guys have your own version of a Chupacabra. We had the Lugaru, yeah. Yeah, the Lugaru, there Lugaru, you go. Lugaru. And, um, yeah, and and they laughed, and they were, were patting me on the back and laughing, and I'm like, how many times are we going to go through this? And they go, are you working tomorrow? And I said, no. And they go, okay. Oh, back. my gosh. And, wow. and we just laughed about it. It was, it was just what happened. And, you know, yeah. the hope was that the government at some point you know, being not knowing a lot about how the policies were affecting yeah. people that were crossing. Gotcha. So gotcha. My thought was, at some point, they're just going to create, you know, more uh, border Pass. passes so people yeah. can come and work. What's the big deal? Right. And it just never happened. happened. And then, now of course, once the wall came up, we created the people used to just come here and work and then go back yeah. home. Right, now, right, when right. you have a wall there, they get stuck on this side. Yeah. So then they have to bring their families and they have to bring you know, uh, their relatives and stuff. And that's how that all started. Gotcha. Interesting. Jen, this has been eye-opening. I know. I hope people listening. No, I'm so glad. I mean, it's just kind of surreal to be honest with you. I mean, we're really excited about this series and excited that you were the first one in this series that we're doing right now. You know, we're reaching out a little further than we normally do and pushing yeah. the signal out a little further. And so, yeah, I mean, there is, we're going to try to talk to people like you who can uh, bring some insight into our area about things that maybe we hear about, but we don't actually get to experience. No, a lot living, about, you know, from you know, a new nuanced insider's perspective yeah so this has been really great mm-hmm. there is one yeah. last question mm-hmm. okay. um and we'll be sending you one of these in the mail actually as everybody she, she get her mug? i know right everybody that's been on the show gets a find the good news mug but on the okay. back is the last question of the day and right. uh it's a question that was born when i started going home and realizing that I would go home at night and ask my kids to tell me about their day. And I realized that sometimes we could slide off and maybe to like, oh, this happened at school and this bad thing. And I realized how often we are we, we are attracted to negativity. It's so delicious and we want to get stuck in it and keep talking about it. So I started reframing the question. Instead, when I go home, I say, did anything good happen today? And so I ask every guest or most every guest on the show that last question to take with them. Did anything happen good in my day? Yeah. Uh, you know what happened that was really good is somebody, some people, two people, um, they did ask me a little bit about, you know, the truth of the border and my time in the Border Patrol, which is a bit negative at times, but they really asked me what can be done and read about what can be done and looked at the positive aspects of immigration and 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 talked about it and didn't say, well, but, well, but, well, but, oh. you know, and, <laughs> and um, so it, it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, I work with the Southern borders and I, um, I'm an, an ambassador for them and also with Define American. And it's hard as an ex agent because everybody wants to know all the juicy stories and all that stuff. Right. 
but there's also a lot of really good stories and there's a lot of really good plans and a lot of really good people that are down here on the border and every single person that I get to talk to and tell about that then can share it with somebody else. Mm, That's wonderful. Yes. God, that motivates me actually, because that's what we want to do with the show. I want to share this Mm -hmm. with people. I want them to meet you. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I went, I've watched your interviews and I've read some of the things you've written, you know, and that was kind of why I wanted to be your friend on Facebook, you know, and, and see yeah, your, and follow your work, you know, but to actually get to visit with you and hear those stories directly from you, I, I'd, I'd hoped to maybe do something a little different today than what I'd seen in some of the other interviews. And as you said, they're all, they're, they're very short. A lot of times on TV, it's, it's very mm-hmm. short. You got 10, maybe seven minutes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if so you're lucky. if right. you're lucky, right. 45 seconds, right. right. Seven minutes with, you know, like four other panelists. Four yeah. panelists. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And no, tell them what they're going to ask. And, you know, I mean, I, I was, I've watched so many of those things. I thought, man, you just can't get a good deep dive in this format. Oh no. Yeah. You know? I don't even yeah. bother with cable names. Yeah. So it was great to be able to do this and just, I don't know, is enlightening. (laughs) Enlightening. Yeah, I think this is where it's at. And for people that can't get out, this is a a good thing for them to listen to. And Mm -hmm. and then, you know, just getting out in the community and talking more about it. That's what I do. I mean, I don't, that's what I do is just talk, just talk about this stuff, you know, and and come at it and, and listen to other people's. Uh, viewpoints and what they're afraid of and try and talk about it instead of just sitting around with our ugliness you know yeah for sure i loved your tone today i mean i'm gonna i just been thinking that this whole time i was like you had to talk about some stuff that's that maybe some of it's ugly and some of it's hard and painful Mm -hmm. but your tone the whole time has been uh it wasn't malicious and that's beautiful because so often I hear malicious tones, you know, in the world. Yeah. And you yeah, didn't speak was, with that at all. It wasn't just um, not malicious for the sake of, like, civility. It was, like, actually hopeful. Yeah, like, right. It, you know, right. You weren't just being, you know, trying to be peaceable. You were just right, telling the truth in a kind, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, a hopeful, constructive hopeful way. way. Yeah. Love that. I try. That's what I, I, love, I, that's what I love about following you. Also, so funny when I get that because I, yeah, I get that. You don't know that I'm you're famous. That more and more, and I'm just like, <laughs> you don't know that you're famous, that. but you are. Yeah, I mean, really and truly, it is interesting. I mean, you don't ever. I love it. I love that about you that you're you're like, hey, I'm just gonna do this thing, mm-hmm. and the yeah. fact that uh, it, it comes back on you and people are like knowing you. I'm sure that's a strange experience, right? I mean, uh, it is. It's it's very odd, and especially you know, it's it's funny. People are like, they'll introduce you know, I'll be on the panel and they'll say you know. Jose Diaz from blah 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 and someone from blah 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 and they're like in Jim Bud and I'm like and I'm just by myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it is interesting how perception works. I mean, because I'm I'm guilty and I don't mind admitting that. But like I remember when I think it might have been through some of Laura's messages and posts. Mm-hmm. It was where I first saw your work and your voice. And most people introduce you as uh, former Border Patrol senior you know agent mm-hmm. Jim Bud. And yeah. in light of the uh, what's going on with the border and how hot of a topic it is? The first assumption for me was, oh, she she just quit. Uh, like, yeah, right. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. Like it was yeah. like, oh, she yeah. she got sick of all this bull crap and like quit over right. this. And so, yeah. 
I had told somebody else that you were coming on the show, and I mean, I had gotten past my initial perception of that, and they were like, oh, she, that's awesome. So she's like whistleblowing about all the stuff going on. I go, well, hang on. Right. See, it's this perception but, like it's yeah. all just happening now, and now. I think it gets back into politicizing it. Everybody's throwing all this. And I'm no Trump fan, okay, but I, be, I also want to be honest. I mean, people throw all of it on Donald Trump. Right. You know what I mean? And you're honest about that. But Donald Trump could not have been elected without a culture that laid, you know, that made the bed. Right. And definitely our policing culture, and that includes, I think, our Border Patrol, you know, was involved in that. But the Border Patrol has had problems since, you know, obviously since I was in, and that's literally why I left. I didn't, you know, I have had some people say, well, it was easy for you to sit there and say people should leave because, you know, you left when you wanted to leave. And it's like, no, 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 no. I didn't Mm -hmm. leave when I wanted wanted to leave right i left because my life was in danger and i went and worked in a cabinet shop for minimum wage sweeping floors so don't give me that yeah yeah you didn't just leave to all of a sudden make yourself some crazy whistleblower celebrity that's going to get all these endorsements and write a book and all that before you ever really spoke out about yeah that's no, kind of why I wanted to bring that up, because I think sometimes people can dump that or, or have a misperception like mm-hmm. I did initially and go, oh, well, this is just a hot topic. And now all of a sudden, you know, no, she's she's right. right. And, and I do yeah. think if I had done that back then, I would have had a lot more animosity and a lot more yeah. anger from my personal personal perspective i am angry with them that so many people have died in their custody and mm, i am yeah. angry with them how they're separating families. But my anger towards them isn't from what I went through as an agent. That's just uh, something that I use because it's still relevant today. You, even you to, have the insiders, you know, new Right. I'm not looking for justice for anything that happened right. to me at the right. time. Right. Yeah. You know, that's long and gone, and, yeah. and, and yeah. that's fine. But um, so I, I'm, I'm also I think blessed in that I did have that time to to cool down and to deal with it and to reflect upon it and stuff so we always try to judo flip that's something i say a lot in the show is a is a aikido you know aikido is the redirection mm-hmm. of energy and and a way of doing that and so we try to do that with most conversations how can we take especially um recently like for instance donald trump came to town and he had a rally here in Lake Charles, which I was like, wow, he's actually in our town having a rally. And so there was a lot of hot tempered stuff going on. And I, I noticed online on Facebook, a lot of my friends were just getting kind of volatile, saying some nasty stuff about him and, uh, becoming almost just an an opposite reflection of, of his base. And I thought, you know, this is the, the, the trap we don't want to fall into is to where we begin to use his methods to mm-hmm. get our our message across because then we're mm-hmm. just becoming that and i don't want to be that mm-hmm. i'd rather redirect it in another way so that's this show is kind of our little attempt at that i guess you know of, yeah yeah and we all have our moments i have my moments too i'm prone to anger faster than i am any other emotion i think a lot of times so uh and i think a lot of that comes from my upbringing and everything but um it's Hey, can, my wife is so funny. She says, who are you? <laughs> so, sometimes now I'm like, well, maybe they meant this. And she's uh, like, hmm. you know, because my wife's just like the nicest person in the world. But, um, I, you know, when people get that riled up and stuff, it's just not worth it. They need to calm down and then we can revisit it later. I really so. don't think justice can be pursued without righteous anger. So, I, I mean, I think you have to baptize your anger and, and well, use it. I, I I understand what you're saying. I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, I think you were saying more that you know unnecessary anger yeah, and calling yeah 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 name calling yeah name calling I was seeing some like, of that behavior and I thought well this is not even though I might be I probably would lean on that person's yeah, side yeah, of it yeah, yeah. the tactic becomes the right. same when we're making fun yeah. of people yeah. or we're, oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. that's what I'm saying yeah, yeah. like when they, they started separating children I was like y'all need to lay down your badges and your guns that's just it you got right, 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 yeah, right, right. yeah yeah and 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 so that's that that is you know that righteous anger righteous coming anger, out yeah. I, I think that's that's important and and it is certainly different for me being that i am a, a white woman so i, yeah. I have to give people yeah. respect too at the same yeah time. yeah yeah what I ended up doing when he was here was going to uh, a birthday party for um the five-year-old daughter of a friend from Honduras, and oh, there everybody you go. there see, was Honduran and Salvadoran, and we had delicious food. Well, see, so you're in like what she said right there to like, do. We couldn't yeah. even hear Donald Trump, even though we weren't that far from downtown, because you know, yeah. we just we had our own party going That's, on, and it fits right. And in I there. loved that everybody yeah. there was just so unapologetically part of this community. Yeah, yeah, and people like him, what he wants more than anything, and a lot of his followers, they want the press, and that's why yeah. he does it. Yeah, sure. And the, the, the most hurtful thing you can do for him is go, then huh, turn away and walk away. Yeah, that's so. actually, unfortunately, that's how you deal with a lot of people like that. And like he's in that, that classic yeah. zone. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what we decided to do, too, was like, look, hey, let's have a, a night with good with good people and have a, a peaceful night and not fill our minds with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're all indoctrinated into us versus them mentality from grade school on. I mean, it's sort of put into us. And so my son and I were talking about that and we were talking after watching uh, that thing with the watchman, I was like, well, I was 1921. Yeah. So that was, you know, 90, 98 years ago. Yeah. And then, you know, the sixties were going, okay, that's only 59 years ago. And it's like, it's we're done in these mm-hmm. big blasts we're still within the blast zone of that and, and hopefully each generation hope you hope we hope gets better and better and can wash that stuff yep. out <laughs> all right Can't well this is great do you encourage people to contact you and reach out to you jen or i mean and, and follow your work I actually, yeah i had somebody on twitter private message me and say that her sister was killed by a drunk driver who was uh, undocumented mm. and that she's been asked to join, you know, that side and stuff, but no, she like the, doesn't yeah. think that all migrants are bad. And she said, how do you feel about that? And I said, I, first of all, I'm so sorry that this it happened to yeah. you. Yeah. And, um, but you're right. No, not all migrants are bad. And even people who come across that, that our good people sometimes make bad decisions right. and yeah. uh, you know and so we can't protect ourselves 100% of the time but we can try and do our best and if we do it with good intentions and we stay true to our core values and and, and think about why it is we do some things and I think we'll for the most part be good yeah so, but yeah, I encourage people to to reach out to me. Yeah, do you, is there a, a preferred method for you? I mean, do you have like a Twitter handle, Instagram handle, Facebook? Is that your best methods, or is there a better way for folks to find out about you and your work, your message? I think Facebook is good um, at Jenba J E N M B U D D, and then um, on Twitter it's backwards because somebody has Jenba already. It's uh. <laughs> a lot of people because my short hair think I'm a guy, but it's. Um, <laughs> But it's um, 
so okay yeah we'll put links in the uh show description with all of that on there too cool yeah i do i appreciate it. i hope this has been a good experience and i really do thank you for your time it has a very good experience i really appreciate it and i appreciate you amplifying the voice of the southern borders and all the work that they've been doing so yeah well we'll continue to do that and i hope i hope that this has been good Yes, it is. Thank you for letting me hop in. <laughs> she was excited when yeah. I told her that we were having a talk. Like, did anything good happen today? This I got to help interview Jen I'm going to be honest. She said when I messaged her, I go, hey, I was like, you're friends with Jen Budd on Facebook, right? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, she's going to be coming on Find the Good News. And her next message is, OMG, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, can I come? Can I come? <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jen Budd. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help me grow the signal by becoming an early riser patron at patreon.com slash find the good news. Sharing this episode with a kind review is a great way to help as well. I thank you deeply for pressing play.